Welcome to the Televerse, the podcast just for TV. Because it's great, we're lucky they make so many fine programs to see. Your hustle and Kate like to debate the merits of all that they've seen. Comedy, genre, reality, drama, and anything that's in between. Welcome to the Televerse, less of the show. Hello and welcome to the Televerse. This is Kate Kalsik, joined as ever by Noel Kirkpatrick. Noel, how's it going? Uh, it's going well. This weekend, i am like been fighting off like half a cold um, all this week. Um, I blame Nick, who we had on for um, The State a few weeks ago. He was sick all last week, and I'm convinced I somehow got whatever he got through the computer. Mm-hmm. And so I've been like coughing and sneezing, congested. And today I'm just like really super tired. I am very low energy today. Um, but I'm excited to still talk about all the premieres, Kate. So many premieres. Now, we won't be talking about every premiere, premiere because no. we did cover many of them in our fall TV preview. Yes. But there's still a lot that we didn't, so we will be right. talking about this. So it'll be more premieres than pilots this week. Um, but yeah, are you, I've also had a cold a little bit this week. I managed to, like, identify it quickly and pummel it into submission with a lot of orange juice earlier this yeah. week before it could take hold. Um, but I, I was convinced that the reason I got... My, the, the part of the internet that gave me the cold is all of this unfortunate news going around about Bake Off, because of course, Great British Bake Off fans will already know this, but Mary Berry is also leaving Bake Off, but Paul, Paul Hollywood is staying with it. No, 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 no. say Paul, say Polly Hollywood. That's that's great. Polly Hollywood, <laughs> Paul Hollywood. Um, <laughs> yes, so Paul Hollywood will be going to Channel Four with the show, apparently with a lot of money. Though, honestly, it was saying there's something like it was uh, rumored to be a million pounds is what he's yeah, getting. Yeah, he got a million pound contract with Channel 4. For, what, three years? I think, yeah, it was a three-year contract for a million pounds. Okay, and, and they're, the, the network is paying 25 million. Where is that other 24 million going? Like, people were saying, ooh, a million dollar contract. I'm like, I assumed it was more than that. <laughs> <laughs> No, I have no idea where that money is going unless they're going to do a really new spiffy tent. Okay. Like a super high tech tent. It's got like biometrics. Oh, yeah. Yeah, you have a fingerprint to get in. They don't want yeah. any, you know, batter stealing from a uh, renegade melon Sue. Um, I, I was enjoying those those memes going around about the tent now leaving and such. <laughs> that was, that was a lot of I fun. didn't see that, but that's fantastic. Yeah. Uh, do you have thoughts and feelings on this? Well, I'm well, the other thing, the other bit of news that broke today that we should mention is the fact that now that uh, Mary Berry was just like, "Ah, I'm going to stay loyal to the BBC, the BBC went great. We have a great news for you, but Mary, we want you to be our premier chef personality for the channel. (laughs) So they're going to basically until Mary Berry decides to retire, she's going to be like the face of cooking for the BBC now. And they're going to launch a competing baking show with Mary Berry as the host or the primary judge. And Mel and Sue are apparently going to be on that show, too. And we'll it's just like, watch. We'll watch. Exactly. It's the kind of the thing. It's just like, oh, you guys, you guys got three fourths of the thing I like about this show. Uh, personality wise, um, I guess I guess I'll go with you guys and we'll see how this goes. Um I'm I'm disinclined to watch like um, the Channel Four version of whatever baking uh, baking show will be going forward, um, but I'm intrigued by how they're going to make a competitive uh, co- a competitor basically uh, to this without 
getting sued or yeah. Yeah. facing some sort of bizarre lawsuit um, about infringing on our copyright for baking shows. So we'll see how that goes. Um, but I'd much rather see something with Mary Berry and Melon Sue, if only because I will very much miss the Bl- Blake Seven blazer jokes. <laughs> Yeah, the thing for me is if I am going to choose between two shows and not watch them both, which maybe I'll watch them both. I probably won't, but right. maybe I will. Uh, I've seen a lot of different versions of Bake Off that haven't worked, that have been close but far enough off that mm, didn't really work. So I watched the CBS version that was with Jeff, hosted by Jeff, Jeff Foxworthy, which was the first attempt to bring it over to the, U- the U.S., and it was okay. I enjoyed it. I watched with my sister uh, all, all that summer, um, but didn't have the magic. I was like, why are they in a tent? This is all very strange. Uh, because, of course, Bake Off hadn't been started to be shown here. It really hadn't broken through at all in the U.S. I've also watched the the more recent holiday Bake Off and the different specials they, that I, I want to say ABC has done. Those have not been particularly good. And those have even, you know, those had, had Mary Berry, but... Um, yeah, hasn't hasn't worked, and certainly the hosting has not been particularly good. So it's very easy to still have the formula of Bake Off and not work. Right. It's exactly like having a technical challenge where you have all the ingredients, but you don't exactly know what to do with them. Yeah. Yeah. And for me, the biggest single innovation of the show is the technical challenge. So Mary... And Mel and Sue's show not being able to do that. That's such a signature thing. I don't think they'll be able to do something quite like that on their new show. Right. That is certainly a significant like mark against whatever this new show will be. Uh, but without the tone and the voice that Mel and Sue have brought the show and the balance between Paul and Mary, I don't know that. Just the structure is enough to keep me interested in Bake Off. It's the yeah. alchemy of judging is very specific. It's easy to get wrong. Yeah. So we'll no, see. You're totally correct. Yeah. 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 We'll see. Um, soon. Soon. We'll see very soon. So. Yeah. I'm sure BBC is all over this and the 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 patriotic angle of it too, of this is something that is, you know the public television you know in, in in the uk and tax dollars pay for it and everything um adding that element to it they will want to do this quickly they'll want to do it right uh and so it'll be very interesting to see what comes like how it all comes together but certainly it's been one like hey something has gone awry in television and we can sit back from afar and observe it this doesn't happen for us usually no normally no, it it's doesn't. other people laughing at the stupid americans screwing up their tv shows yeah um but i also just feel bad for all the folks who were like have been invested in great british baking for much longer and now it's like tearing the country apart mm-hmm. it's not literally it's not tearing the country apart but uh, so many anguished tweets from yeah. uh, those in my feed who are British and just like, oh, this isn't okay, guys. We don't know what to do about this. Mm-hmm. Yeah, there was a shout out at the Emmys, which we'll talk about the Emmys later in, in our weekend TV. There was a shout out at the Emmys, though, from uh, not my favorite person, Stephen Moffat. Um, and the way that in, in a week that in actual stuff that matters has been pretty damn shitty. Um, this has been a nice diversion uh watching that far less consequential drama play out so um yeah it's certainly been something keeping 
my my feed all 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 the Twitter as it were. This week uh, at the end of the podcast, we're talking with friend of the show Les Chapel about Justice League U- uh, Unlimited. I almost said United, United Justice League Unlimited, which was a lot of fun. Thanks, Deborah. Yes. Always a pleasure to have Les on. Yeah, no, it was a lot of fun, and I was glad he was able to come on. This is one of my favorite shows, which comes through by how much. I talk in that segment. <laughs> it's just like it's just like kind of lots of squeeing, basically. Yeah, there is a lot of squeeing. We finished recording and then said, "Oh, but we didn't talk about this thing or that thing or the other thing." So there's a lot of uh, appreciation, a lot of love coming at the end of the podcast for uh, Justice League Unlimited. But first, we've got a very full week in TV, so we will take a break, listen to a little bit of music, and come back with our week in comedy. That was It's a Small World After All, uh, which may not have been featured in this week's television, but fit thematically with one of the episodes we'll be talking about here in a minute, Blackish, which had its Disneyland-filled premiere world. World, Disney World. Disney, Disney world. world, thank you, Noel. Uh, this week in comedy, we're going to talk, I'm going to talk very briefly about Kevin Can Wait, which had its pilot uh, on, on CBS. Then we'll talk briefly about Brooklyn Nine-Nine, Coral Palms. Uh, part one, the Blackish premiere, VIP, The Good Place. We've already talked about the pilot, but we'll also talk about Flying and Tahani Aljamil, which, you know, they had three episodes this week. So quite a start for The Good Place. Then we'll talk about Superstore, which had a season two premiere, Strike. I'll talk a bit about Easy on Netflix uh, and Graves, the premiere of, of Graves, as well as a few quick thoughts on Survivor's Remorse and Documentary Now. Uh, Survivor's Remorse's second thoughts in Documentary Now. <laughs> Juan likes rice and chicken. Uh, and we'll wrap things up with Full Frontal with Samantha B, which is finally back after a lengthy hiatus. Um, but, but first up, Kevin can wait. Now, you already talked about this, Noel, in our TV uh, preview, our fall preview, and you were not kind to to the to the show. Fair enough, I think. Would you say that's a fair assessment? Yeah, no. I mean, I basically said, said that Kevin can totally wait. <laughs> and uh, But you're ready to give him a go signal. Yeah, well, I, I just... Or at least a caution yellow light signal. I just think it's fine. You know, like, I, I think that when you... Kevin James is a very funny person, uh, comedian. I've enjoyed his stand-up that I've seen, um, the different stand-up uh, specials that I've seen from him. Aaron Hayes, I really enjoy. And I it just... It's a very straightforward family sitcom. The fact that he is a retiring cop, like, like you say, he's too young to really makes sense to be retiring from from the police force barring something ha- probably happening or at least he seems too young to retire just to retire um and certainly in the size house that they have but there's not nothing like that is mentioned uh to yeah. that so that it actually makes any sense they just want him to be retiring and i guess you have been a cop so they can do cop jokes and stuff uh, i don't really know why they specifically chose this but um but any depth from that is not actually even hinted at. That's you got to write that all in yourself. Uh, so I was disappointed in that. But I do think that the the patter between Hayes and James works well, and the the dynamic with the family members I think also you know works well. I like the cast. So for me, I was like, eh, B. 
It's not bad. It's just, I like, I, I don't know that I laughed out loud, but I didn't groan. I didn't roll my eyes. And I was just sort of like, yes, I'm watching a fairly bland, but, you know, entertaining enough to pass the time uh, sitcom. And for some people, that's the kind of TV they want to watch. It's not yeah. the kind of TV I particularly am interested in, but compared to many other things that are premiering this fall, I would say it's in like the inoffensive range. Does that make sense? Sure. I mean, I'm, I, I can understand where you're coming from. It's certainly very bland and safe. I mean, we've got jokes about Kevin eating four hamburgers in like 90 seconds mm-hmm. um, because he's fat. Do you get that he's fat? Did that come through for you in the jokes? See, okay, but <laughs> but having, like, I grew up with two older brothers and a dad who, like, and with my, my sister and my mom, like, just the thing was, we did, there weren't seconds. Seconds weren't going to happen. So if you wanted food, you made sure that you got enough of the first round because, like, the notion of there being an extra burger, uh, I thought that, but you guys already all had, that was my, who ate my burger? They're gone. Somebody's, like, working on their third before I've even been able to sit down and have my first. That's a thing I've experienced with my family. So that, mm, I see what you're saying, but that kind of also reflects parts of my upbringing. (laughs) Okay. It does not reflect parts of mine. Mostly I was just went, oh, they're trying to make they're they're letting us know he's fat. Okay, I I didn't know I didn't know he was fat. I couldn't t- I couldn't tell the jokes. See, I just yeah. didn't know. For me, that's um, more a that's more uh, of like a Midwest dad thing and less of a uh, fat joke. But I do I see what you're saying. I see what you're saying. Yeah. Um, I think the only other thing that stood out that I didn't discuss was the fact that her very British boyfriend is named Chael. Oh. God. <laughs> For yeah. The only reason of being is that he's named Chael. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and that's the joke. I'm just um, glad to see the Squintern get another gig. But you're right. It is a ridiculous yeah. name. No one would name their kid that. Well, I mean, someone named their kid Benedict Cumberbatch. So, I mean. But, like, Benny, come on. You could see that <laughs> them being like, let's give him a normal name. We'll call him Ben. And then he became an actor and began famous. Ben, you know, they were, like, like very fancy Benedict. I don't know. I have right. no idea. Very what the, posh. Yeah, what the actual... <laughs> You know, progression of Benedict Cumberbatch. I have little known fact, listeners, I'm not in on the inner circle of Benedict Cumberbatch's like life story, but um, I don't know. We're getting, we're just getting distracted here. There's too much TV for this level of distraction. Certainly, <laughs> we should not still be talking about Kevin Can Wait. Uh, agree to disagree. I liked it more than you did, but neither of us are particularly enthused or offended. Uh, we will probably not talk about this show ever again. No, I probably won't watch it ever again. Yeah. But, you know, if it's your thing, enjoy. Uh, More of my thing is Brooklyn Nine-Nine, which is back for season four. At the end of last season, we saw Peralta and and Captain Holt go into witness protection. That's where they kick off things in Coral Coral Palms Part 1. I really enjoyed this episode and having it just be the two of them without the rest of the team. What did you think? No, it was a very nice, like, look into their lives as Greg and Larry. Mm -hmm. Um in Coral Palms, uh, complete with uh, really unobtrusive but still great Rhea Perlman cameos as yeah. part, of, part of Holt's walking group. Um, I was so glad to see her. I haven't seen her I on my TV too. in forever. Yeah. Yeah. So, uh, yeah, no, it was a very fun episode, but it's also part of like a much bigger thing as they get Holt and Peralta back to the 9-9. Um, so this is actually like the first part of two or three, actually, because uh, the next part's a direct continuation. And I think the third part's still like the third episode's going to be like the wrap up. Um, but I'm I it 
hasn't really lost any vibes. I mean, that was the saddest way to eat a burrito I've ever seen. <laughs> and no one should ever be sad while eating a burrito. Burritos are wonderful. They should be full of joy. Enjoy your right. burrito, Nerdist fans. So, no, I really enjoyed the premiere a great deal. Uh, how did you feel about it? Yeah, no, I thought it was a lot of fun. And and it was a smart way to kick things off, uh, to pick things up. I liked that they didn't, for this first episode, at least they didn't split the narrative. And I, you know, I don't, when you've got Captain Holt power walking with a group of friends and talking about how much he loves his wife, his female wife, <laughs> um, uh, I'm going to enjoy uh, pretty much anything you put around it. Throw on some frosted tips on Sandberg. And, God, those tips, man. Yeah. No, it was it was it was a lot of fun, and uh, I I mean probably I don't think we'll check in on this until they wrap up. Maybe when they wrap up the the this three episode arc, we can check back in and see how they handle everything. But I mean, it's been a really solid show for, for pretty much since its pilot, but certainly from its second season on. Uh, so yeah. I'm not surprised to see it come back in fine form here. Uh, what about Blackish, which came back for season three? VIP, we really loved a lot of last season. How did you feel about this episode and the just the 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 Disney of it. They go to Disney world and the whole thing is a giant commercial for Disney world. Did that bother you? I thought we were done with ABC making their family sitcoms go to Disney world. Um, Cause yeah. I don't feel like it's happened in a very long time. Um, so I was just like, Oh good. We don't have to deal with this anymore. But I then remember that ABC has only recently reinvigorated their family programming family comedy programming which means that oh right now you have to inflict this on everyone but then i realized on the upside is that the goldbergs and fresh off the boat can't go to disney world because there's no way to turn disney world into the 1980s version and the 1990s versions of disney world so they don't have to go there um but yeah it was it was as bad as pretty much every other ABC sitcom goes to Disney World typically is um, it is like you said just a very long commercial for Disney World and even one of the subplots with Pops, Ruby and Rainbow is Disney World working on them getting them into the spirit of Disney because they're just tired and want to leave but they can't leave because they get sucked in and it's just like oh god no that's not how Disney works Disney works by being really really hot and going to Epcot and drinking that's the only way you get through it it's the only way Pops had the right idea so so um, you have experience with the park then because I've never been and that was my only yeah. like qualm about my response to it I know people I've met many many people in my life who find out that I've never been to Disney and just like look at me and they're so sad they're like but you have you've never but it's it's like that idea that it is the ma most magical place on earth or whatever the slogan is like that I know a lot of people for whom that is true and for whom oh. they would watch this and be like, that is exactly my experience. So I don't I didn't know if it was just my bias not having ever experienced that. No, I have a married couple who I as a single person, I ha I collect married couples. Ah, OK. Yeah. Um, yeah. Because um, like you do. Like, like you do. And I have a married couple who are very deeply invested in Disney. They go like two or three times a year, in fact. And they probably would have really enjoyed this episode but me i just went oh no and they like got married at epcot they got married at the italian pavilion in epcot and so like their weekend wedding was at disney mm -hmm. and so like when pops is just like it's so hot and i'm just gonna go to epcot and drink that's exactly what i did because it's the <laughs> only way to get through it because otherwise it's just this mass of people waiting in lines to go on things mm -hmm. and i've never been a big roller coaster fan or a ride person so it's very much 
oh, there's booze in Epcot. Fantastic. Um, <laughs> but yeah, I just, I didn't particularly like this premiere. I'm way more interested in seeing like what Fresh Off the Boat's going to do with them going to Taiwan mm-hmm. for their premiere. Um, so I'm, I think it's their premiere, but I'm very excited for that. But this was a very kind of lackluster episode of uh, Blackish for me. Yeah. Even if I did enjoy like the capper of, um, Dion Cole's character. Charlie, stay, yeah. Charlie, yes. Uh, staying in the house all weekend. <laughs> and not knowing what Microsoft was. <laughs> yeah, no, there was a lot. I mean, for me, the, the part of this that was blackish, I really enjoyed. So yeah. the blackish episode within the Disney commercial, I really enjoyed. Um, and the stuff with Charlie, the dynamic with, with Rainbow actually enjoying herself with, with uh, you know, with Ruby and Pops. Like, I actually... Thought, had a lot of fun with that the notion of trying to leave but you just can't find and just getting sucked in i was reminded of the ds9 um uh, uh conversation between odo and and quark about root beer and how insidious it is and how like the federation as root beer um yeah it, so i was enjoying elements of that and the, the narrative of i've spoiled my children i need to make i need to distance myself from them so they can actually like be their own people and like that sure that the so the blackish episode within this i enjoyed but yeah it was a bit it was a bit much for me um well what about uh the good place another show we don't really need to worry about doing <laughs> obviously it's on nbc but i'm doing that kind of a pr- uh, promo placement that's probably not going to happen we liked pilot a lot how did you feel about flying and tani aljamil uh, I really like both of these episodes and I'm not going to like go into like really deep specifics because I've actually seen the next two episodes already too. Ah. Uh, so everything's kind of like blurred together a little bit for me. Um, but I really liked this show a great deal. Um, the second episode I think does a really nice job of establishing again, why Eleanor isn't really a terrific person. Um, and is doing whatever is necessary to get out of trying to help. And I think that's all done really well and shown really well. And then the Tahini episode with the flashbacks and everything. Uh, But no, so the flashback structure is working well enough for them, as long as they don't like lean on it too heavily. But I'm really enjoying the show so far. Um, And Ted Danson's such a delight. Uh, How did you feel about the second episode? It was nice. I mean, it's a bit on the nose, but uh, but they have fun with it. And I like I really enjoy and this is more in in the pilot, but I really do enjoy that. Yes. They've established their world well. Everybody who's there is an amazing, amazing person. Uh, but I appreciate having them call out via um, Eleanor that mm, Tahani is super passive aggressive and controlling. And like that there are flaws with these, some of the people who are there. Just right. they aren't things that pinged for whatever reason. In right. They've done the enough list. good. They've done enough good that their point system balanced anything out. Yeah, but it's not like they're these automatons uh, of just goodness and moral virtue. So I like that they are finding a couple notes to play with this. Because it'd be easy, like, if someone, if you have such a distinct, like, point system and value system for being able to get into the good place, whatever it is, and that you have to be an amazing person to do it. Like, the only reason Lincoln gets in is because he freed the slaves, as you may recall from their point value in the first episode. That was really high on the point value. Um, but this idea that um, that so few people get in, that you have to be truly amazing, one in several million to get in, um, it would be easy to then feel trapped into making everybody perfect 
theoretically. And and I like that they are finding shades within that with their characters. I'm enjoying the dynamics. And I also just, again, I think that they're doing a really good job with what they're giving Ted Danson to do. I think right. I think Kristen Bell's gotten a lot of the attention. But for me, it's been more about uh, Danson. And I, I've been more surprised with that character so far. Right. And that's the thing that when we were talking, when you were talking about like how these people aren't like perfect automatons or anything, what that brought up in my brain is the fact that Michael himself has this creator architect type, um, angel, whatever you want to mm-hmm. call him, is very much not perfect either. Like he's, he doesn't know what to do when everything goes off the rails. He's like really flustered and frustrated. And you see that progress more in the next few episodes of him wanting the best for all of his residents, but not necessarily knowing the best way to achieve that. So he's just as flawed as in a different, very different way from how Eleanor is flawed and from how Tahini's flawed. And I really appreciate the fact that Michael isn't omnipotent. He isn't really perfect. I mean, this is his first rodeo, basically. This is his first good place community that he's crafted and he doesn't he doesn't know what to do mm-hmm. and i really really appreciate that that aspect of it and like you said it gives Danson a lot of fun beats to play and he just he's such he's so good at it and i'm really i've i'm enjoying the good place immensely yeah absolutely what about superstore i uh, had their premiere season to premiere strike now i i saw on twitter you're talking about catching up with it had you seen right. any of this before this week no, I hadn't seen any of it, and I only watched like four or five episodes. I think six at the most. Mm-hmm. Uh, before I watched them yesterday on demand, so I did like the pilot. I did um, one did episode. Do, did you do the salsa episode? Yes, I did. That's yeah. No, that was the episode I was trying to think of. I did chips and salsa, and then I did like the last three episodes of the lock in, and then the labor, the labor, the ramp up of the labor union type stuff that was happening. And I really enjoyed it. Um, I really liked how they very quickly, at least in my sense of skipping around, immediately went, oh, we're not going to do this romance, will they, won't they thing. We're not going to belabor this point. And so I was even concerned that they were going to, even after she puts a ring on her finger. But then it was just like, oh, no, we're, we're not even going to deal with this anymore. And it's wonderful. It's really nice. It's really refreshing. It just takes a whole lot of baggage off the show. And it allows them to really focus on the premise of the show of these people who have this kind, frankly, crap job of working in a retail box store. And I say this as someone who's worked in two different kind of retail box store type environments, one set of Blockbuster and then again at a Chuck E. Cheese. And <laughs> I'm sorry. Thank you for your no, service. No, no. <laughs> you're, you're welcome. It was eight months at Chuck E. Cheese and it was a very unpleasant eight months. Um but so I'm all this stuff that happened in like season one, especially like the inventory, the hanging up new signs and there not being any real difference between the signs is so real, Kate. Mm-hmm. It's so real. So I really enjoyed that. And then this premiere just kept that going in a lot of really good ways. And I enjoyed them navigating, wanting to stand up for their principles and everything, but still needing this job at the end of the day to get by. And that's a very real reality for a lot of people. And they found the humor in that, but they also found a way to express the seriousness of this kind of a situation, whether it be big box 
stores or fast food restaurants who have been doing a number of strikes recently with over the past like two or three years, that this is something that people deal with on a day-to-day basis. And this is something that we need to be aware of. And I think that there's a really good, they navigate it really well without making any of the workers look horrible or belittled or anything like that. It's there's They find dignity within their jobs. And I really appreciate that aspect of the show. So as someone who has watched the show far more consistently than I had, how did you feel about the premiere? Well, first of all, you're absolutely right. The smartest thing the show did at any point was, and I want to say like episode two, they're like, by the way, Amy is married with kids. We're not going to do that. We were, the pilot makes it, we're going to, but we're not going to do that. And they let, they let the um, Ben Feldman character go, but you're, I thought, Okay, no, okay, my bad. Uh, so they, they give him the audience perspective. They don't, like, try to pretend that the the vibes they were putting out in the pilot between the two of them weren't there, but they give that to him and write it off that way, and that's a, just a much... Just I was so glad when they did that. I was like, oh, good, my faith in the potential of the show from the pilot is uh, well well-deserved, clearly. Uh, but, yeah, I, this week I watched the Super, the Super Bowl, the, um, the Olympic special... And and then this the premiere and I thought they're both again they both really play on the strengths of the cast as something that they developed quickly in the first season. Um, but just the the rapport between the different characters these are a bunch of really talented actors who have done a bunch of other shows I've enjoyed. This week in the premiere they bring in Michael Bunin who I've of course know from My Boys and loved on My Boys. Uh, that's where I that's where I learned his name as opposed to that guy who shows up in things. Um, so I was really happy to see him pop up and like you say they treat everybody pretty much with right. respect in this and they don't win they don't win anything they you know they make their grievance known they get a little bit of press but very very little and, and they, they get bad press and they get bad press and they <laughs> wind they spend a bunch of money because you they had to make those shirts they had to rent that stuff somebody paid for that and nobody on this show can afford that stuff so they lost out in their relationship with their employers they got nothing for it other than getting, they did get back, you know, everybody's job. But um, yeah, it's just, uh, I love that they didn't win anything. That is just like, okay, and they, they also aren't defeated. They're going to, they still feel strongly about this, but the reality of it is they need to work. They need jobs. They need income for their families or they wouldn't be working at this job. If they had other options, this wouldn't be where they work. So um. Yeah, I, I thought it was just handled very well, and it was a lot of fun, and I look forward to seeing what the rest of the season has to offer. I'm also just really appreciating the the buzz I'm seeing around the show. I'm so glad people discovered it in the off season and are checking in now. Yeah, I know. Like, I mean, you you mentioning it, but also like a lot of the critical commentary around the show made sure that it was something I was at least going to come in and watch the premiere of. Um, but because I had like some space. Uh, in between stuff uh, yesterday, I just found that it was on on demand. NBC rightfully made it all of the first season available pretty much anywhere that you can watch stuff. Mm-hmm. And so I just like watched a handful of episodes and just went, yeah, no, this is really very good. And so I was very excited to see the show continue in that vein with its season two premiere. Yeah. Well, speaking of shows 
being put on on people's radar. Uh, I want to mention documentary now because uh, I don't have much to say about this particular episode one likes rice and chicken. But uh, I discovered that it is now on Netflix. The first season is on Netflix. So hopefully, Noel, if you have some time, you can check out at least the Grey Gardens episode. Since I know you're a fan of the documentary, I think you will I am. enjoy that. Those, that ep- those episodes, that episode, I think it's just one. It might be two-parter uh, from season one. Um, but this episode is, of course, their take on Jiro Dreams of Sushi, which I have not seen, but I've heard many great things about. It was It's a really- also on Netflix. Yeah, okay, there we go. <laughs> um, it was it was a, a fun episode. I could see the beats because being familiar with the discussion around that documentary i knew what to expect and i thought they executed it very well i wasn't like busting a gut laughing um but it was just it, it felt like yeah that's what they did they did the 22 minute you know without commercial take of this 90 minute documentary we laughed at some some tropes of like food critics and 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 the family dynamics and everything and they had a, a little bit of uh, uplift at the end and so it didn't explode my brain or anything but it was a fun it was a fun half hour and i just wanted to mention that again everyone go on to netflix documentary now you will also be saddened to see limitless up there if you're me going ah i want there to be a season two i feel like every time i open up netflix it's just taunting me with it you may like limbs like yes you know what i would like a limitless season two netflix but anyways maybe people will discover limitless season one Noel. maybe they will I, I, uh, when we get to the drama section, I'll, I'll discuss Limitless a little bit. Okay. Tears yeah. pouring out for Limitless. Um, anyways, uh, also this week we had Easy on Netflix. This is a uh, six, eight episode um, series from Joe Swanberg, uh, anthology series. It actually dropped on Thursday this week on Netflix instead of their typical Friday. But I watched the first two of this and uh, I enjoyed them. They're, they're, it's an anthology series looking at relationships and, and uh and uh, and and sex and different couples. Uh, it's all set in Chicago theoretically. The first two episodes, the first one didn't really feel very Chicago to me, but the second one did. Um, and yeah, I I, I, I like them. Uh, I don't know how it was. It's very like slice of life and very. It, it reminded me of something like Banana, um, but whereas Banana and Cucumber were looking at a very specific community within London. This the first episode is uh, a married. Uh, straight couple with kids then the babysitter of the kids is the center of the second episode who is a a young 20 something student who is queer and uh she has a girlfriend and who she meets someone who's vegan and then it's like she loves bacon and eggs and then she starts taking their different identity like the notion of when you start dating someone and and you start taking on, you feel like you need to be more like them or something. But, um, but yeah, so, so I like the second episode more than the first episode. The first episode is looking at gender normativity and how that affects sex life and everything. Um, and being, if you feel like you're beyond these things and then, then you find yourself falling into patterns and whatever. But, um, it was less, it wasn't as, um, I, I it was like, a, a, a series of scenes uh, from these characters' lives. I don't know that it came to any conclusions. I would need to think about it a lot more that I don't... I don't I don't know that it has something more to say than just here's, you know, X number of days in the life um, based on those first two episodes. But I enjoyed the days in the life, if that makes sense. Yes. So, 
Yeah, this is not something I will hugely prioritize, but it's something where if I get caught up on shows, I could see myself dipping back in for the the rest of the season. It's a short season. That helps. (laughs) I've finished One Mississippi and I finished Fleabag this week as well. You know, these shorter run shows are easier to catch up with. I haven't started tackling BoJack again yet. Um, But yeah, so, so I, you know, because of, because of the short episode order, because it's well filmed and the actors are, the cast is really great. uh, I, I could see myself tuning back in but it's not something i plan to prioritize do you you think you'll you'll dive in with easy or is this one that you're just not gonna you know on the list of things that there are to check out it's just do i need another show like this yeah no my basic response is do i need another show like this and i don't have an answer to that right now um but maybe if netflix like keeps pushing it to me like the same way it's pushing limitless at you Mm -hmm. um i may try it but um i'm not in any rush yeah. to get to it um it goes on that ever-growing uh streaming list that you and i keep discussing yeah of, hey yeah no i should totally watch that on a weekend i don't have anything else to watch oh i'll just re-watch these episodes of limitless instead <laughs> cry into a pillow ah, tears <laughs> tears indeed um well the next show i have here is graves which is i had mentioned it in our preview this is the show with nick nolte and see the ward as a married couple i didn't oh, that's all i knew this is. Okay. yeah but what graves is is it's um so it's a comedy about a very thinly veiled w analog um okay only a bit older um uh but yeah the like the last they call him like the last great republican president and they show like a <laughs> They show like a, wow. but they they show like a graph of different of like various Republican presidents, and they show Bush Senior, but they don't show W in like the right. the pre the previous ones. So he's taking that like position in our history. They talk about him. Um, he's feeling tremendous guilt over opening up wildlife refuges to oil drilling and getting involved in a bunch of wars in the Middle East and preemptive bombings and like all these different things that he's clearly he's he lives in um like Arizona or New Mexico on a ranch and right chops chops firewood for no discernible reason yeah so so and he's basically having a um a crisis of faith as to having being considered the worst president of all time like there's been some recent thing poll or whatever of of intellectuals and they calling him the worst president of all time he finds out about this and this pushes him into this sort of um spiral of of reflection self-reflection and he's going to he comes out and makes this big statement about cancer research you know which his presidency had gutted um and and now being the president that that you all need deserve and everything like like that. And so the while I enjoyed the could enjoy the performances from the cast, it's just really hard for me to like it was it felt awkward because of it was such a clear let's make a story about W without making it about W and it just felt very um like obviously you can make whatever story you want if you're creative go for it. And if it's good, I'll watch it and I'll enjoy it. But there was more separation in, for example, in a, the West wing between, uh, Jed Bartlett and like Clinton, this idea of a progressive in the white house, you know, what, you know, they they were clearly very inspired by there's elements there where you're like, this is the mood of the nation at the time. So the show is impacted by that, that kind of a thing. Or like the, the, politics of something like 24 being very much a product of you know the political environment at the time this jed always felt like an individual like his own character like an actual character 
this guy does not, this character does not enough. And so for me, it just, it, it felt like if someone else who doesn't share any of the political beliefs or background or reasoning of somebody like a, a George W. Bush, then writing and like, what if he realized that uh, everything he believed was wrong? It's like, he's going to change his entire worldview in one day because you want him to, it just felt very disrespectful um, and presumptuous in that way. I don't, does that make any sense? No, that makes a lot of sense to me. Um, no, this sounds very, it sounds very odd um, mm-hmm. the way you're describing it. And it sounds also like, while you were describing everything and talking about Nolte's character as a George W. Bush like stand-in, um, I was trying to figure out like topicality, like timeliness of it. Mm-hmm. It's just like either A, we've gotten far enough away that we can do this now. Or B, it's this project was percolating for a very long time and it's just like, oh well there's enough there's enough platforms and venues out there that we can do this now. Yeah. And I'm not entirely I based on I don't know anything about the production process or I didn't watch this. So I don't know how any of that's working. Um I just know that I'm not sure that I'm interested in what you're basically describing sounds like a redemptive George W. Bush fanfic. Yeah, but if he didn't, if he just decided that his reasoning for every decision he made as president, there like there wasn't one, and so it was all well. invalid, <laughs> and therefore he changed his opinion about everything. It's like it, it just it presupposes that this character didn't have any reasons for what he did when he was in president in the presidency, and now after he's done all these terrible things, he decides we're supposed to care that he decides. I was wrong. I will fix it all now. Give me another chance. I will be your president. Like, no, we voted for a different guy. That different guy, assuming in this world, I don't know, maybe it's a woman in this world, but in this show, but we voted for a different person to be the president. They are our president now. You don't get another shot at it. That's not how it works. Like, it was very, it was just very off-putting with that, where it didn't feel like it was a progression or there was no sense that, like, I did my, that, like, this, it didn't seem like he thought he had done his best in the office and that he had now come to the conclusion that he had been misguided. It felt like there was no reasoning for everything that he had done. It was just like he sent troops in on a whim to these different things, got a lot, thousands of people killed and stuff. Um, and I think the show, it, it, you could see how the pieces of it, like, there's some fun sequences and everything. You could see how it could become something, but in the in the first episode, they did not do a good enough job making him feel like a rounded character. It just was like, what if dot dot dot? Yeah, I don't know. No, I can see that. There's yeah, no, you're not making me want to check. You're making me want to check it out, but you're making me not want to check it out. And there's also a plot about the the daughter, uh, the presidential daughter, getting out of a, who's a spoiled brat, um, or or did, not a spoiled brat, but responds to her husband cheating on her by blowtorching millions of dollars of a furniture that the Smithsonian had wanted, um, because she you know has a you know I guess she's mentally fragile or something like she's emotionally fragile and so she gets cheated on so she destroys millions of dollars of furniture and house houses and that's supposed to be cute or something i don't know uh this is on this is on epics um okay 
and they've already I think there's already a few episodes that are out, but it yeah, it, it's, it's a ten episode show, but um, yeah, it just I don't I'm not hearing anybody talk about it, and well, it is on epics, so <laughs> I think there's in, is I think it's interesting. I think that they're trying for something. I just don't know that I think it works. Okay. Anyways, um, something people will have seen more of, hopefully, is Survivor's Remorse, even though I know there's not a lot of y'all watching it. I just wanted to mention Second Thoughts this week, um, because there it was another really stellar episode. Um, they are killing it over on Survivor's Remorse here in Season 3. So um, I'll have more thoughts next week, which is the finale, um, after the finale. But I just wanted, I had to mention this episode, which is talking about, um, that like, they, they're dealing with some really heavy issues the the main character finds out is finally after a bunch of pressure being put on the his mother to tell the sister who her father was he finds out that the mother had been gang raped at 15 and that's why she won't talk about who the father is because she doesn't know and also she doesn't want to relive that at the same time um that that leads to a like a thoughts about um him the main character having impregnated his girlfriend in in high school and then they had gone and gotten an abortion um the she got the abortion but um so they that's drawing up memories about that and like decisions made as a teenager and how's that spiral out to the rest of their life meanwhile there's also there's also funny stuff happening in this comedy but um but they've just they've been taking on a lot of really interesting issues and topics and and treating them as very rounded and defined by the characters in in the show rather than as capital I issues. So um, hopefully people, again, I'm just going to keep plugging it. You should check out Survivor's Remorse if you get stars because they, they're doing a lot of really great stuff this season. Um, but our last episode for our week in comedy is Full Frontable Sam B. Uh, we're so glad it's back. Yes? Yes. No, very glad. I think it was actually back last week. Um, but they came out with a very strong, notable episode this week. Um, I think it was back last week. Maybe not. It doesn't matter. They came back with a really strong episode this week in which... B discusses like uh, the Ailes and Fox News sexual harassment controversy that uh, broke most most mostly over the course of the summer, um, but ramped up a lot last uh, earlier this month as Car- Gretchen Carlson's uh, settlement uh, was announced. But for me, the big takeaway from this episode was B's response to Trump appearing on Fallon last week. Um, which was a very weird and bizarre thing. Um, because part of the reason, the other part mixed into all this was Trump's 32nd, uh, acknowledgement of the fact that Barack Obama was a United States citizen, Mm -hmm. which is something that he had plied his political career on questioning since 2010, 2011. Um, if not earlier, yeah. Yeah, if not earlier, but very publicly by 2010, 2011, yeah. asking for a long-form birth certificate, then questioning the idea of the birth certificate, all this stuff and sort of stuff. Mm-hmm. And she lays into that, and she lays into Trump appearing on Fallon. And for me, the stuff with the birth certificate and the commercial for his hotel that was just a larger part of his actual thing of i ended the birther controversy period (laughs) and she's like no no you didn't and but she approached it the exact same way like seth myers who's doing really good work with this stuff on his closer look segments on the late show 
I yeah. think it's the late show. Yeah. Um, was really, I, really enjoyed that segment this week, can we right. say. Yeah. Yeah, no, Seth Meyers has been killing it basically all summer with the uh, closer look segments that he's been doing about yeah. each of uh, whatever particular controversy is happening that day or that week. Yeah. Uh, look look them up on YouTube. They're all on YouTube. Yeah. They're all really fantastic. Um, but And he and B had very similar approaches to that press conference. Um, but I was talking to Corey after the picture of Tr- uh, Fallon mussing Fallon, uh, Trump's hair dropped, which dropped even before the episode aired. Like, it was a press photo that NBC released, like, mm-hmm. hours before the episode aired. And everyone was just like, what the hell is this? What What is happening here? Mm-hmm. And this is the correct response, is that someone needed to complain publicly and not, like, in an op-ed or through BuzzFeed or someone in the late-night landscape or the pre-almost late-night landscape, depending on how you wanted to find B being on at 10.30 at night, um, going, we shouldn't be doing this. We shouldn't be making a guy who embraces a particular strand of nationalism that's grounded in racism and anti-Semitism and basically just very white nationalism. Everything-ism, basically. Right. And going, oh, look at him. He's kind of funny, isn't he? Isn't he He just adorable and cuddly? He's so cute. And it's just like, no, you should not be doing this. This is not okay. And it was really funny because, like, I told Corey, I was just like, do you think Seth's going to do anything about this? And obviously he wasn't going to do anything about this because Laura Michaels produces both shows and he's not going to touch it with a 10-foot pole. Mm -hmm. But I was so relieved when B was just like, what what the fuck? Mm-hmm. Why why did this happen? NBC, why did you let this happen? You were just like, we're never going to touch this guy again. And you let him on three of your shows. Yeah. But it was such a good segment and she was rightfully outraged about it. I mean, I was outraged about it. And I was, I'm normally not big into echo chambers, but I was really, really happy when she was just like, she said everything I was wanting to say about this kind of, further proof of this kind of normalization of him as a candidate, which is a much larger media discussion that is beyond the scope of us. Mm-hmm. But it's just, this is this is ridiculous. And I was glad that they addressed it very, very quickly. Uh, how did you feel about the episode? Yeah, I thought it was, I thought it was a strong episode. I was very, I'm very glad to have her back, the show back. I still very, very much miss the nightly show. Like almost every day, I'm like, I wish there was a nightly show where they were talking about their stuff. There's so much going on, um, and it doesn't it doesn't fill that void for me at yeah. all. It's so they're very different. It doesn't fill that void. But I've been missing that, and I've been missing uh, um, uh, John Oliver. They should be, he should be back this this coming Sunday, and because he was too busy winning an Emmy uh, yeah. <laughs> this past Sunday, but he should be back this coming Sunday. Um, so I was glad to have her back. For me, it wasn't a standout episode beyond her regular episode. She was just back in the same fine form she's been in all of, all of this year. So um, I'm glad that she's back. I enjoyed it. And I'm glad that she called out NBC. I would have liked a more direct call out of Fallon and a talk about what responsibility, like I, I would like to see a conversation on one of these shows about the intersection between entertainment and news and the, the position of these late night hosts as their entertainers. Is it their responsibility to be, is their job just to put on the best show that they can do? Or is it their job to be politically involved and aware? 
and the, because they are shaping the narrative of this election as much, you know, as as many of these <laughs> news networks of CNN, MSNBC, and Fox News. Um, so where where the distinction lies between comedy, their duty as a comedian, their duty as um, someone who could be a a tool of the various campaigns, and that's that's Democrat or Republican. Nobody's really having that conversation. And when you have people like Sam B and John Oliver on one side of that spectrum, much more in the journalism side, what the journalism that like with research and sourced and all of that stuff, that's funny. Then is it okay? Or should it be expected that there be somebody else on the other side? Who's just not in, not interested at all in the political effect of having somebody like Trump on their network because they're just trying to be funny and that's their job. They're a clown. Then you could talk about the history of the jester, court jester. Right, someone. no, that, that's exactly what I was going to say. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know. What do you think about this? Well, I think that it's a very two-pronged situation in which, like, I mean, you go back to, like, even within our lifetimes, this, um, like, Clinton appearing on Arsenio and playing the saxophone. Yeah. Um, I mean, the, the degree of responsibility of what they should do and how they should behave um, with political candidates is up in the air but i think that my issue is just a very specific trump case and Mm -hmm. what his campaign rhetoric is how his campaign functions and how what his campaign like espouses and that to me is the reason why i was so very much upset i mean it's not like oh you got mitt romney up there and you messed up miss romney's hair which of course isn't possible because mitt romney's hair is (laughs) actually just a helmet that he puts on and like a perfectly coiffed helmet (laughs) right no that's all that is it's like covers his positronic data brain Mm -hmm. and that's how that works but it's one of those situations where it's a normalization of a candidate who shouldn't be who shouldn't be being normalized that I very much object to. And it lends legitimacy to him in a way that I don't feel is appropriate. And I acknowledge that this is very much grounded in my politics, but this is also very much grounded in this idea of how much reach media has. And this goes, again, like I said earlier, very much to this idea of equalizing both candidates in a way that they really should not be equalized, at least in my perspective. And that was just very, very frustrating to watch that play out. And I think that there is, to me, a responsibility to not normalize that kind of behavior, which is why I was so frustrated that a Fallon must his hair, which is ridiculous, but B that the producers of the show and NBC we're both just like, oh yeah, it's cool. Let's do it. There, are, there's no need to concern yourself with like equal time. I think at this point, at just it's, I don't understand if you're if basically if you don't want to have if you wouldn't want to have Trump on, then not having Clinton on wouldn't have been an issue. Mm-hmm. So I'm just I'm deeply fresh. I was just very deeply frustrated by it because. Yeah, it just it very much normalizes him as a candidate, which I don't think is appropriate. Yeah, no, I I, I agree. I certainly agree about that. Yeah. And there's there are many many ways to derive comedy based on political figures, right? And if you look at the way that Clinton, uh, Hillary Clinton, has been depicted on a show like SNL 
over the lifespan of her political career, you will see that you can you can make you know it's like oh, well I'm just taking the headlines and making humor out of it, like driving humor out of you know these political figures who are important. Yeah, but you can do that a lot of different ways. There's a lot of there are a lot of ways to get entertainment value and humor out of a character like a person, but a character like Trump, just like Hillary Clinton has been portrayed as shrew shrewish, uh, controlling. And all and just terrible at various secretive. points. Secretive, yeah. yeah, untrustworthy. And she's also been portrayed as an exasperated, uber competent, like badass uh, who no one will listen to in right. at various times too. So you can and both being funny sketches taken out of their context, you can right. find humor with there isn't only one way to to interview trump and if you have just because you have equal time with clinton and with trump does not mean that that time has the same effect and 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 has the same is like like that thing with the hair is a viral moment that everybody saw yeah there and yes he had clinton on as well and through literal softballs (laughs) uh, to to her yes but Nothing that he's going to do with Clinton is going to have the impact with the public that what he did with Trump is going to have. So, yes, it's equal time. But where does the responsibility lie in in looking at what you are propagating through your writing, your comedic writing? Right. And no, you're absolutely correct. And like returning to this idea, like the jester and everything and talking, finding humor within the candidates like uh, Clinton was on um, Between Two Ferns this week. Mm-hmm. And did you get a chance to watch that? I have not had an opportunity. Okay, it's it's good. On uh, and there's a couple of really good jokes, but the joke of two ferns is basically that Galifianakis is the joke, and the other person there is very much not the joke. Mm-hmm. Uh, but there's still plenty of humor to be mined in. Like Galifianakis asks, like the best way to get in touch with you is it email? And like Hillary's very good at like deadpan. Anyway, mm-hmm. like she's actually very very good at it but there's a number of other really good jokes like he's just he's talking about how oh right you're gonna be the first girl president and wow that's really impressive for a lot of girls and she decides to like kind of roll with it and then he goes but also for a lot of younger people this will be their first white president isn't that monumental too (laughs) exactly it's a very funny joke and it's a very it's a really funny way to like deal with her candidacy in a way that speaks kind of like a vague sense of truth and pokes fun at the historicalness of her getting this far and hopefully at some point actually being president. Um, so there, there are ways to do that and ways to be that kind of comedic voice that still can get away with being tough mm-hmm. and not necessarily like in a hard bitten jur- Edward R. Murrow sort of journalist way, but still being someone who cares about the public discourse. Yeah. Do you ever wonder what our country would look like if uh, comedians had found a different way to make Al Gore funny? <laughs> I don't like to, cause then I get really sad. <laughs> Guy's yeah. got an excellent sense of humor. Watch his Futurama appearances. If you're Emperor not sure. Emperor of the moon. <laughs> yep. Anyways, uh, that's the, that was depressing. So let's, yep. uh, you know, leave on a happier note. What wins your week in comedy this week? 
Um, I'll give it to the good place. Um, full frontal with a very, very close second, but I'm really excited about Good Place. Um, after having seen significantly more episodes, it's probably the new show that I'm most excited about. Um, so I'll give it to the good place this week. And if only just for Danson's performance, uh, which is a marvel. Uh, what about you? What wins your week this week? Oh, man, it's tough because I really like Kevin can wait. Well, I really like Brooklyn Nine Nine. Really like Survivor's Remorse. Um, really like the Good Place and Superstore. Uh, but I think I'm actually going to give it to the rest of One Mississippi. Okay, um, and perfectly fair choice. John Rothman's amazing. Yeah, I also, mm-hmm. I mean, it didn't hit it out of the park for me a hundred percent. But I like there's still moments that felt kind of stilted. But on, as just, I really enjoyed it. Um, I also liked Fleabag a lot, but I had did, that one didn't land for me as well as it did for a lot of other people. But but uh, but yeah, I think I'm gonna give it to to one Mississippi. Uh, strong competition though this week. Strong competition. Now we'll take a break and come back with our week in genre and reality. Shut Up and Drive by Rihanna, of course, featured memorably in this week's episode of Ru- RuPaul's Drag Race All-Stars as a the first lip sync for your life. We will have thoughts on that at the end of the segment. But first up, Noel is going to preview Westworld. Uh, I'll talk a little bit about the Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D. premiere, The Ghost. Uh, we'll both talk a bit about Exorcist premiere, Chapter 1, and Let My Cry Come Unto Thee. Then we'll talk Emmys, uh, the Emmy Awards this, this week, as well as, uh, of course, we'll round things out with RuPaul's Drag Race All-Stars, Revenge of the, Cre- of the Queens. And I have revenge written here isn't it revenge i think it's revenge but even if it's not revenge it should be so revenge. just calling an audible it's revenge now regardless you know either i did yeah. the, the correct or incorrect research but either way it is now revenge of the queen so first up though westworld is coming to hbo soon yeah. uh yeah uh, a couple of weeks it's the second or third of october so not this coming Sunday, but next Sunday. Yeah, it's the second. Much anticipated. Uh, I have not seen the the movie that it is uh, based on. Uh, I saw. Yeah, no, I'm not familiar. I know the premise, uh, and I'm sure I would enjoy it in a campy B movie kind of way, based on my enjoyment of things like classic Doctor Who. But uh, I, I've just I've not been super anticipatory for this series. After, you know, I just, I don't know, a lot of people are very excited about it. I've been sort of, we'll see when we get it. How were you feeling about this one beforehand? And then did the the premiere, did the pilot or whatever you were able to see, did that change your opinion or or reinforce it? Well, um, based on the, like the trailers for everything, I decided to do an Ian McShane riff and basically go, oh, Westworld's just going to be tits and robots. Yeah. And yeah, um... And so I was not very excited about it. And this is a show that's had like 
trouble production issues getting through HBO, uh, which is never a particularly good sign for any show, but it's a, not a great sign for like an HBO show where their program development is normally a seems very streamlined, but B, if there's a problem, the idea of it getting out is odd. Um, so that was, that made me very hesitant. And so I've watched the first four episodes and, um, I don't think that this is going to be the big hit that HBO is really hoping for. Um, and I'll limit myself to like a very broad discussion of the premiere and just say it felt very, apart from the sex, that's actually significantly more tame than we've been led to believe, um, which I was very surprised by. Um, and the violence, which is about on par with what you would expect. Um, it's a very tame show. Um, the, the premiere itself feels very broadcasty in a lot of ways, in the sense that there's a lot of repetition of information. There's a great deal of handholding in the uh, premiere episode and in the episodes that take place, like in the park office basically for one of a better word where they keep reiterating rules and concepts so that the audience gets it and it's very weird to see that coming from an hbo show almost like they were very concerned that there was going to be confusion um so we'll talk about this like more going forward i'm not unrecommending it but if you're very excited about Westworld, I would manage your expectations a little bit. And after you've had a chance to watch it, we'll kind of dig into it a bit more. Uh, but I would very much manage expectations going to Westworld next Sunday. Good to know. And yeah. of course, in a show like this, that has been so anticipated for so long. And I think right. that's almost always good advice anyways. Yeah. But but yeah, good to, good to know. Um, do you does it seem, did you get a feeling of, this is something, especially you're saying that it feels very handholdy and like we really want you to get this. HBO really could use another hit. Game yeah. of Thrones is is on its way out uh, on the scale of things. They haven't had another like all of their best shows and most uh, popular and well received shows are in their season five, in their season six. That kind of a you know ballpark. Even like I would say Silicon Valley pretty much is their most recent one. Um, and that's in season, what, four now? Yeah, four or five, I think. Four yeah. or five, yeah. Um, so do you feel like there, did you get a sense from watching these four that this was like a notes thing or they're really, they really want people to like it, so it may have been watered down? Or do you think that this is the show that they wanted to make? Is that what comes across? I think it's mostly like the latter. I think one thing that, to, that I kept keeping in mind was that this is a bad robot show from the bad robot studio. And mm -hmm. there are a number of elements, including guess what? A mystery box type of situation on the show. Never. Uh, never. And you say JJ Abrams production company. Yeah. Hmm. Uh, but yeah, no, there's some sort of weird mystery element to the show as well. And that's, I think after I remember that it was a bad robot production, that the handholding uh, triggered this idea of, it being kind of a broadcasty type show in a lot of ways, um, apart from the more salacious aspects of it. But um, there's interesting thematic ideas in it, but they're all repetitively delivered. Again, repetition is like the big thing of this series so far. And I'm not sure if that's meta commentary or not. And that's something that we can dive into if you decide to keep watching through like the fourth episode. Um, but yeah, it's just... It's a very weird show, but to answer your larger question, I'm not entirely sure that this is going to be the big hit 
that they need really um to keep themselves going and to keep subscribers interested in their original programming but i'm also notorious for my anti-premium cable bias um (laughs) so but i feel like this was just a very strangely boring boringly strange show Hmm. and neither of those combination of adjectives uh should be applied to a show with the premise of oh rich people go and hang out with robots in the wild wild west on this nature preserve in somewhere in the united states yeah yeah so we'll see but i'm interested in hearing your thoughts once you get a chance to watch watch it okay so we'll check back in with that listeners uh probably after the premiere but certainly after the the four that you've seen um agents of shield came back for season four this week season four and i've watched all of it and it hasn't deserved that but it usually shield agents of shield the reason i've stuck with it so long is that it tends to be just very very watchable with with actors sure. I enjoy, I don't feel a huge commitment to it, but I can put it on and I can walk out of the room to go get my laundry and come back and I know what's happening and it's all very likable people and everything. So I've just found myself in season four of a show that I've seen every episode of. Um, I don't care about Ghost Rider at all. Uh, that's the big addition in this premiere. And so that doesn't help with things. I don't really like the position they've put the... Um, cast and the characters in of being all fractured and there's this like sense that there's there's a new director and and can we trust the new director we don't like the new director they say the new director like 10 times in this it's hyperbole but still a bunch in this first episode we don't actually meet the new director who's i don't remember they they cast them it's a name i don't remember jason omara Jason, Jason Omara. Right. That's not that's not helping things. Nope. That's not nope, helping it's things. Not. <laughs> no. Um, and we've got Fitz keeping secrets from Simmons because he has to because of reasons. And none of that points to good good things. However, what I will say is that the, I think they tend to deliver decently solid action on this show. I liked yeah. all of the explosions that we got with Ghost Rider, which feels about right. And one of the things that I feel like Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D. doesn't get the credit for that it I think it really should is the diversity on this cast is just insane. This is where you go if you want to watch superheroes of color because everybody <laughs> pretty much is a superhero of color. And I love it. There's, there's the, you got your two English characters and you got Coulson, but then you've got badass Melinda May, you've got Sky, you've got, oh my goodness, I can't Mac. remember his, Mac, yeah, Mac, uh, previously Trip, R.I.P. Um, you've got, uh, Yo-Yo, you've got now Ghost Rider, and like, and all of these characters are, they're ident- they're, 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 they are rounded characters. They're not defined by their ethnicity or their background. It is part of who they are. And it is something that every now and again, is when it's appropriate, is woven into the narrative. And so watching the, the premiere, uh, because I'm only familiar with the Nick Cage ghostwriter and just like, and like just stills from comics, um, I believe. The ghostwriter in this is is Latino. I could be wrong. No, he I, is. It's a Marvel is relaunching the character completely in the comic books as well with this version. So that's mm-hmm. why he's on the show. Okay. Um, and I was just really struck by that being like the ghostwriter I'm familiar with is Nick Cage. How awesome is it that we've got Latino ghostwriter here and 
it's not like a big deal. It's it's just another character in this world. If you're looking for superheroes that aren't the <laughs> cookie cutter white dude triangles of the Marvel films, you know, you you watch the show. So I appreciate I appreciate that that's clearly a priority to somebody at the show. Do I wish the show overall was written better? Yeah. Would it be nice to have Adrian Policki and, and back on the show? Yeah, I do. I miss her, but I just I think that that's worthy of of mention. I don't sure. know. Sure. Yeah. No, I, I I think that's worthy of mention as well. It's just uh, that's not enough to get me to watch the show. <laughs> oh yeah, no, it's not enough reason I, for a lot of people. It won't be enough of a reason to watch the show. For some people, it will be, and that's cool. Yeah. That's you do you. Um, I will probably just keep watching it because entropy. But um, <laughs> but yeah. It, I'm not really super enthused with where the season starts out, but you know, for mindless entertainment, it's not offensive. It's They'll fine. Be back They're, together by episode four or five. They exploded so. things. People have active superpowers. You know, we'll see what happens. Um, yeah. So uh, I'm less likely, I think, to stick in long term with The Exorcist. Uh, had its premiere chapter one and let my cry come unto thee. I liked what we saw here. I like the cast. I am yeah. not familiar with the film. I put a poll up on Twitter. Should I watch? The film before I watched this. And um, Sean and I just told you to watch Alien instead. <laughs> <laughs> well, uh, I, I should, I do, I have been meaning to watch The Exorcist out of just like seeing great film yeah. um, for literally at this point over a decade. Um, <laughs> and I just haven't, I'm never uh, hanging out. Well, first of all, scary movies are scary for me. I'm very, I'm a scary cat. We all know this on the tellers. Um, but so I don't want to watch The Exorcist at like nine o'clock at night. And then go to bed. No, no. I want to watch it like 10 a.m. on a Tuesday or a Saturday. I could do t- Saturday as well. Uh, and anybody who would want to watch The Exorcist with me and like my family and friends doesn't want to watch it when it's sunny outside. They want to have the spooky experience. So, right. so I, it never comes up for my viewing is what I'm saying. I haven't watched it. So I'm not familiar with that outside of just the the things that everybody knows through cultural osmosis. What, uh, so I, when I just saw that this was going to be not really connected to the original and just draw some visual homages to it. I, I felt comfortable watching it. Uh, hopefully I will make time for the exorcist at some point in the not too distant future. I thought this was atmospheric. I like the cast. Um, I like certain moments of it. I like the, I guess it's supposed to be a twist of who's possessed. Right. Seems, it's, it's pretty telegraphed. I think if you watch a lot of TV, um, the way it's presented, um, they don't hold your hand. But it's um, it would be more interesting if it were something else, and then it is that something else. Uh, the stuff of the bird flying into the glass was creepy. But it was such a bad CGI. Bird. It was a very bad CGI bird, but it was still creepy for me. <laughs> like I said, classic Who fan. I don't need good CGI. <laughs> um, so yeah, I thought it was solid, and I thought it was. I thought there was enough atmosphere. I can see why people watch it, especially. I think it's a good fit on a Friday night for genre yeah. fans. And for as it gets as it gets darker earlier as we go on through the fall, I think I can see how people will like it. It certainly has is better than any than I would have thought. I don't know, but I can't give it the full throated support that others have because uh, it didn't like wow me or anything. So, right? Yeah. Does that fit yeah. with? Because we you, you talked about this in our TV preview. Right. No, it's a very like premise heavy episode, which is difficult to wow anyone in a premise heavy episode because I mean we end with the big set piece in the attic, which is really well done, I think, um, mm-hmm. and genuinely kind of frightening, and I really enjoyed that uh, aspect of the episode. But 
it's still very much all right we need to like go through the premise to get to that twist of who's possessed and then it becomes the question of well how do you turn this into a show after this Mm-hmm. And I think that that's going to be the larger question of what does episode two, three, and four look like of the show in which we've got a possessed girl in a nice house uh, with Alan Ruck and Gina mm-hmm. Davis and a number of other really good actors. And so I'm interested in this um, and I'm interested to see how they're going to like go forward with a, a what I'm assuming is going to be a serialized horror show, but about one thing and how they can make all these narrative beats balance and without feeling like they're rehashing the first film. Um, So we'll see. We'll see. This feels like the kind of show that um, I would, that would be a more natural fit as like a Netflix where you drop them all at once. Probably. Yeah. But I imagine like the narrative pacing of this. Oh God. I think about a Netflix show doing this and I'm immediately like episodes seven and eight are just the two priests sitting down, taking a break from trying to exercise the demon <laughs> and everyone goes Netflix sag and <laughs> it doesn't have to be a 13 episode Netflix show right it doesn't but... have to be a th- yeah no but I yeah. also don't know if I want to watch an eight hour exorcism show that's true that's true but seeing yeah. how they deal with the weekly format of you can't just have the ex- the exorcism is going to be the end of the season right pretty much or, or pretty maybe a mid season yeah you know something but there are, there are narrative limitations based on the structure that it'll be interesting to see them be creative with. Either they will pass that test or they will fail and it will not work. Um, so, so yeah, we'll see. I plan on watching week to week or check, like letting it build up and checking up on it later. What do you think? Uh, well, I mean, my Fridays are empty because I just set aside time to record and talk to you. Um, so, I mean, I get done. It's just like, oh, well, I guess I can watch The Exorcist. <laughs> yeah, because it's at the start of our week of watching stuff, so we're not behind on watching stuff yet. Yeah, pretty much. Yeah, there's that. Well, um, speaking of behind on watching things, we had the Emmy Awards this week, and there were plenty of shows in there uh, that I had not seen those behind on. But all the pretty much the heavy hitters, I felt like I could enjoy the the categories because I actually felt informed and you know. I'm only going to groan so much at Maggie Smith winning for Downton Abbey because, first of all, I enjoy Maggie Smith. Second of all, she's probably the best thing about that show at this point. I guess not having watched it in several years because we spotlight shamed it in season two and ditched it. Well, you don't um, have to watch it anymore because it's done. It's done. Uh, and three, because they wisely made a nice recurring bit that they could pay off <laughs> with her win. Um, but on the whole, yeah, I felt like there were a lot of predicted winners, but I still thought it was a pretty, pretty solid show. What did you think of the Emmys? No, I'm surprised you said predicted winners, mainly because I think like the only the um, movies, miniseries movie category was very predictable. Okay. Um, but everything aside from that and Tambor, I feel like everything else was like, here's a surprise. Here's Louis Anderson winning. And it's just like, wait, what? And here's, uh, here's, here's Titania Masal- Mas- Maslani winning. Tatiana Maslani, yes. Right. And going, wait, what? And mainly because obviously Emmy voters finally just like finished watching Orphan Black at some point. And went, like season oh, one. <laughs> yeah. Well, no, they finished season one when they nominated her last year. Okay. And th- okay. Yeah. Yeah. And then they, they gave it to her for season two this year, I guess. I don't know. Mm-hmm. But so that was really surprising. Uh, Rami Malek winning was really surprising to me as well. Um, 
So there was a lot of that kind of stuff that was really surprising for me. Um, but I thought Jimmy Kimmel did a really nice job hosting. Um, he was very funny. His opening was very, very bad. But um, I think he got better as the show progressed. And I mean, he got Matt Damon to come out and just yell at him for a little while. And I always enjoy that. Um, so it was fun. Um, but I, I had like weird reactions to like Tambor winning and Soloway winning and just that kind of stuff. But those are my transparent hangups. And so that's beyond the show. That's not the show's problem, but it was a very streamlined show. They did really quickly, but it was just very weird to go. All right. We spent 10 minutes giving the people versus OJ Simpson, all these awards. We're going to play them off immediately for winning best minis. (laughs) (laughs) But yeah, so that's basically how I felt about the Emmys. They were perfectly fine, um, a little unpredictable in a lot of places. But it was also just weird that both of the best actors for their respective categories and supporting and lead, one for playing women. Yep. A little weird, guys. A little yep. weird. <laughs> the, uh, well, see, but I wasn't surprised too much. First of all, I expected Transparent to end right. the- to win everything comedy. Yeah. So that wasn't surprising to me. Also, there was a lot of buzz, I felt, at least in the critical community, for for Louis Anderson, at least when, when Baskets came out. I felt like that was the part of that show that consistently like, stayed in the conversation. So when he was nominated, I wasn't hugely... It was that, I guess that was kind of a surprise. But then when he was nominated, that gave an extra boost of buzz to the performance and stuff. And I could see the, like, the novelty of that being... Like, the Emmys are not big on novelty. But yeah. that being something that the novelty of that performance, like kind of pushing it over the top, you know, like when you have a, a bunch of dr- comedic or best actor in a comedy performances, and one of them is the dramatic character in that comedy and they always win <laughs> that kind of thing. Um, so, um, which is not, I'm not saying that that is the case with baskets, but um, yeah. I, so I wasn't hugely surprised with Louis Anderson winning. Um, of course I could root for people versus OJ and Regina King the whole time. So that, that, Portion was not surprising. Game of Thrones cleaning up, not surprising to me. Rami Malek, not surprising to me because of the Golden Globe win. Um, right. And Maslani, yes, but I, I didn't have anybody. In the categories where I was most, I, I guess I was surprised, I didn't have somebody I was really heavily rooting for outside of the Americans. Um, so, and I didn't really think that they would win. So so for me, it wasn't really the the experience of I'm expecting them to get everything wrong and then they got it right so that like I didn't have that experience with it right. I thought that the show started a lot slower for me than it did for everybody else I was not particularly enjoying the show I didn't think it was very funny it was moving along at a nice clip but um I was underwhelmed in a strong way by Kimmel for the first 45 minutes maybe of the show um but then they brought up the Stranger, Stranger Things kids which was awesome and they um, they did the, the thing with Matt Damon. I, th- I thought that they, instead of having all of the best comedy up at the top, like it's yeah. so frequently the case, they had good bits throughout. Like they said the Maggie Smith thing, so that could be a nice bit later. They like they had different um, they had different things that could pay off so that they kept the momentum up, the the energy of the show up. And then having the, like the some of the speeches did that as well. The whole rock my ch- rocks my chain. Um, yeah. thing became a, a recurring bit through the speeches that then again helped buoy the, the later part of the show which tends to be more when it sags and gets less interesting um so the speeches were, were really fun and uh needed I, I i appreciated tambor shushing the audience so he could talk about the need to cast trans actors um i think it's a little um 
ridiculous. I think it's, it's well, I think it's an excellent, excellent point to make. Yes. However, as his you're show standing, should not be making it. <laughs> yeah. Well, it's like it's like I yay. Thank you for giving me this award for this role. This this juicy meaty role that has so much wonderful things that I can play so much nuance and depth because of the particular life that this character has as a trans person and no one else should have this role no no other cis actor should have this like I don't see you saying that you shouldn't have this role he's like I hope I'm the last person to get cast it's like yeah okay um maybe if you had said at any point maybe I shouldn't have been cast but I, I'm glad to have maybe you said something like that, you know. But I yeah. do think it's a it's something that needs to be said. And I'm glad it was said in such a public way on such a big stage. I also enjoyed the, the cut to um to Laverne Cox being like, "Yes, cast trans actors, please. Don't let me be the only one <laughs> on TV, uh, on network TV." And you know, anyways. But um, so yeah, I thought that there were some nice beats throughout that that i enjoyed um and on the whole i'm happy with the winners yeah and uh it ended early which is always a good thing which is credit, a good thing yeah credit like usually i enjoy the beginning and then it kind of fades and it's a, it's a slog this one i was meh on the beginning and then it built and i think more award shows would benefit from that so right uh yeah but hey we were just happy Sterling K. Brown finally won for Supernatural. I mean, it's taken years. Hasn't been on that show since like season two. Um, <laughs> um, but no, that was the only race I was even remotely invested in. So I was really glad that he won. And you said race. So that will transition <laughs> us nicely into RuPaul's Drag Race All-Stars with, with Revenge of the Queens, which I love this episode, Noel. It was so good. It was so good. And, and Tatiana and Alyssa are back. I, I mean, as long as Tatiana is back, I'm game. Like, I enjoy Alyssa. I would not have been heartbroken if she hadn't returned. Uh, but Fifi's out. Tatiana and Alyssa are back in. What did you think of the revenge? Uh, so the actual, like, mechanics of the revenge revenge were really, really good. I like the fact that uh, the returning queens came out with their surprise revealed dresses, uh, mm-hmm. which I thought really hammered home the idea of their return, their surprise return. And I really liked that as a representation of the twist. I thought that was really, really clever of the show to do. The episode as a whole, I was just kind of like, eh, if only because the challenge was just bad. Um, Like, I felt like most of the stand-up was just not good, Um, which it wasn't, like, super surprising to me, but it kept veering between bad sketch comedy to scene studies that were not good at all uh to decent um if unfocused comedy stand-up so like alaska it was alaska yeah alaska and Alyssa's was really really strong i thought but because they found a balance as a comedy duo which no one else really seemed to achieve in a lot of ways and comedy duos are hard like i think it's kind of the reason why there aren't that many of them that anymore is like finding that kind of balance in a stand-up stand-up arena is really difficult um but they had found that really good way to play off of one another and to play to both of their strengths that i really appreciated but um to the larger drama of like fifi and everything it's basically when coco is like oh girl you need to get over your Alyssa Edwards issues you know you have some shit going on (laughs) 
<laughs> uh, so, um, yeah, it's just, it didn't really register for me in the same way it did for you. So tell me why you were really into it, apart from, like, the twist and the revenge of everything. The Just the, the way they built the narrative in this episode... Of the of Fifi, basically, this episode was all Fifi. Uh, was really satisfying to me. So watching like the reaction shots at, of the the queens, specifically Fifi, as the they return and they've heard what she said. The dynamic with back and forth with Fifi and Alyssa about yeah, but I say always say things to people. I, I, I anything I would say when you're not there, I say when you're there. That kind of thing, and and then the notion of like, well, I'm just being honest, and you're complaining about that because you're t- like that whole victim back and forth. Like the dynamics of that, I thought were really entertaining and and really interesting. And and what was so satisfying to me is that you can see, I could see everything that Fifi is saying. I'm saying like, okay, yes. I you're being terrible right now, but I can see why you're saying this and I can see you getting defensive and I'm sure with more space and distance, you probably wouldn't react quite the same way. But dude, you're on RuPaul's Drag Race. This is not your first time. How do you not know how you come across? How do you not like like uh, she's been complaining uh, or, or uh, like she's broken ties with the show. She's not yeah. coming back for the, for the the end of season thing. And um, and she's been complaining about the edit. And I don't know if you were aware of this, but the producers were not happy. So they just they've started releasing various like unedited stuff, footage to show. I was unaware. I knew about all of this stuff of her breaking with the show. I did not know the producers were just like, oh, screw you. And here's all this stuff that we left on the cutting room floor. Yeah, well, and it's not a lot of of it's not even necessarily about her but like this i know that specifically one thing that they've released and it might just be the only thing so far but at least they've released uh unedited judges comments because mm-hmm. fifi was saying that oh that's not an accurate sense of what the judging was actually like they were a lot harsher on Alyssa here and she should have gone like all this different stuff like that, and they're like really okay here's the unedited judges comments yeah. um and yes producers manipulate you but they can't put words into your mouth You said these things and they have to build a narrative. And yes, they promised you a redemption arc. That was the idea of getting you to come back on the show was to give you a redemption arc. That's how they sold you and coming back. Fair enough. But when you don't hug Alyssa, when you leave, they can't give you a redemption arc. Right. At that point, even if they didn't, you know, take joy in screwing you over after your interactions with them over the course of the season, um, they can't give you the redemption edit because of how you end things. So then they're like, okay, we can't do that. I guess she's getting the villain edit. And that's like being the most generous to them that you can be. Um, So just this, this lack of awareness of you're on a TV show. This is not your first time on that TV show. She clearly, it would not say clearly, but it seems like she didn't have the just emotional, fortitude to right. really handle what that meant in a different and, way from like a door realizing it and going oh, i can't do this i shouldn't well, yeah. be doing this and again that's why it goes back to me it was very reminiscent for me of a door but a door said a door did the first episode and then said i can't handle this this is not going to end well i need to leave and and i know a lot of people thought that that was a very immature way to handle it but 
at the time I said, I think that was smart for her and what she needed to do for her mental like stability and well-being. And that's seems like that's what Fifi should have done too. (laughs) So it just really shows that there are, and this is something that Paul, uh, that Tom and Lorenzo talked about on their podcast uh, today uh, of there are types of people who should not do reality shows because there are types of people that under stress will lash out and all of their worst traits will come to the fore and that we all have terrible things. If you film us all day, we're going to do terrible. Like you can put a lot together, but there are people who under strain, the worst of that stuff will come out. And there are people that under strain, the best will come out or they'll like shut down or different things. So people like Fifi, the worst is coming out and they're, and they get more upset. So they, they lash out and give the editors even more footage to work with. Those people should, it's not a good idea to go on reality shows. Um, and I, I, that's sort of where I was at with that, with, with Fifi in this. And so for me, watching that narrative over the course of the episode and just watching her not be able to help herself from lashing out with bitchy statements, I could, I got some enjoyment out of that. Now, the, there is a lot of hate towards Fifi in the fan community, like even like right now, that I think is ridiculous. I mean, this is a person yeah. Why are you being mean to them on social media and, and, and bullying them and lashing out at them? That's insane to me. Um, but I can enjoy the episode in front of me without feeling like that is any... And I can enjoy saying Fifi, the character on this television show, is the worst. Right. Uh, so I, I got a lot of enjoyment at the comeuppance of... like And even just like the way that she had done her face... Uh, with the with the with the out, black outline of the lips, so that when Alyssa <laughs> won, she you could see it was like she went frowning cloud face, <laughs> like it was just like there was so much like that that I really enjoyed. Plus, I also like I said earlier, really loved the lip sync. I thought it was fantastic. I enjoyed like the back and forth um, more than I have it a lot recently. Um, for most of the season, in you know of the deliberations. I thought that that worked better here than it has, and um, and I'm glad. I'm just glad that Tatiana is is back in. So, th- yes, yeah, some of the comedy wasn't what it should be. Can you imagine if they had had Bianca like oh, there? God, oh, I kept waiting for Bianca just to show up. Um, if only as like I think that maybe they would have gotten Bianca to come on as like a guest MC as opposed yeah. if if a door hadn't left basically and thrown everything off. Uh, because poor Roxy just. Oh, but you know what? She rough. tried. She was game. She identified her flaws and like yeah. kept moving. I, I, you know what? This is not her strength. It is no. well known. Yeah. I thought she did about as well as she was gonna. So yeah, no, she did. But yeah, yeah no, it was, it was bad. But no, I very much wanted Bianca to be like, come up and just go, no, no, no. I got this. Got all of this. I can play all of you right now. <laughs> well, any other thoughts on on Drag Race and on like, did you like the way that the the queens came back? Did you think the right people stayed? Did you think the right person went home? Yeah, no, I think the results of everything were exactly how they needed to be done, and um, how the like that that was the thing. It's just like, and this gets back to our discussion last week about how. Well, are they going to stick to this judges critique thing for getting rid of the most people? No, they were never going to do that. That was like a two episode thing, Max. Mm-hmm. And now it's just like, well, Fifi doesn't care enough to make a case because she doesn't want to beg. Mm-hmm. And it's just like, no, there's a lot of money on the line. You beg for that shit. Well, and <laughs> also it's not begging. Right. And second of all, when you were in the top, you were telling everybody they, you know, like, like 
Well, I guess she said she didn't need to talk to anybody. No, but still, she... that's the thing that, that everybody's been doing and saying why you think you need to stay. You should stay is not begging. And also, I there was no, as far as I'm concerned, there's no personal vendetta in Fifi getting eliminated. She wasn't funny. No. Her, her thing was the least funny yeah. of the different sketches. Also, who would want to work with her? She's yeah. just like, like when she started shit talking uh, Tatiana's partner to Tatiana uh, and Tatiana's like, had barely been in the, the, in the, the season. And she yeah. was just immediately like, no, don't need this. We don't no, We don't need this. Right. So, um, yeah, I just, yeah, I, I thought it was a very satisfying hour of TV with some nice, uh, choice quotes, like, you know, choices. <laughs> I thought that was a nice little thing. Uh, I'm, I'm totally team Tatiana at this point. I'm um, not to win or anything. Alaska's going to win. We all know this, but, um, yeah. but I, I'm very glad that she's back. <laughs> Well, what was your week in genre and reality? A uh, big old shrug. Um, okay. I didn't see anything from drama, genre or reality this week that really kind of bowled me over. So I can't give it to anything this week, I'm afraid. Uh, what about you? Oh, Drag Race. Yeah. Definitely. Definitely <laughs> Drag Race. Um, now we'll take a break and come back with our week in drama. That was Quanta e Bella, Quanta e Cara from Lizio D'Amour, uh, which uh, I have not done my research on listeners. I will not be able to do a Kate's Classical Corner this week. I ran out of time. But you know I was putting the opera in there when I could, when I heard it on a Halt and Catch Fire. You knew it was going to be in this week's podcast. This week in drama, along with that episode of Halt and Catch Fire, we'll, we'll get to it. But we're kicking things off with the bold premiere, The Necklace. I have so many thoughts, listeners. Uh, then, then Noel's going to talk about the MacGyver premiere, The Rising. Uh, we'll both talk that episode of Halt and Catch Fire, and she was. Then Queen Sugar, The Darker Sooner. And we'll wrap things up with Mr. Robot, which had its finale, Python Part 2. So first up, Noel, you warned tell me, me about, about Bull. Bull. Yeah, tell me about Bull. You said it wasn't good. Um, yeah, and it, it's not. It I did really, It did pretty well, though, but it, you, yeah. But yeah, even with your warning, I was not prepared for how much I hated this pilot. I really hated this pilot. So from the very first moments, you've got all these char- different people talking like to their cameras, like to- like filming themselves talking about the system um, and how it's broken and et cetera. And I don't enjoy watching video like like self-shot videos like that in any circumstance let alone when it's this not interestingly written or just a completely phony topic the way that it's framed it's like who is recording these you have all these like who's watching these are these on youtube are these like are these characters we're gonna meet like why why what what 
Um, so Bull is about somebody who reads juries for a living. Um, Dr. Bull. Not just on- reads, but crafts and figures yeah. them out and gets in their head. And is able to just, you know, he he's magic, basically, is what he is. Because he knows everything. And he's smarmy and rude but we don't care because he's so smart at a certain point my love for sherlock holmes will not i feel like at a certain point the all the benefits of sherlock holmes are not worth what sherlock holmes has wrought upon our pop culture uh and i would say the thing that really brought this back was was house and then all the different ones that have gone since then uh but um yeah, so so this is a show where we're introduced like the very per- from the very first frame. I was irritated because if they if it had been like an interview, like them talking to a camera, I could have been okay, uh, whatever. I'm not not interesting, but okay. But instead, they shoot. They have the opening scene shot with all these people talking, like recording themselves talking about how the system is broken, man, um, without any reason for them to be doing it. And then I guess they uploaded it to. Or I guess they don't even need to have uploaded it because they could have just had it on their phone and then Dr. Bull and his company uh, just hacked into all of their phones and all of their private data because that's a thing that the characters do on this show. No one says, oh, but that's very illegal. Uh, they just say, no, we know somebody at the NSA, so we just steal everyone's personal data and strip them of any privacy and... That's okay, because we're the good guys. <laughs> yeah, we just don't care whether we're getting an, a kid off for murder. There's no discussion of whether he's innocent or guilty. Of course, at the end of the episode, we're meant to to assume and just believe that Dr. Bull has known this entire time that he was innocent because he instantly saw him and knew that he was gay, so he couldn't have killed someone or something. Um, but uh, the fact that the show has no character even ask whether the, this person that this this spoiled rich kid that they're getting off for murder is innocent or guilty that ignore that don't let that bother you about this episode don't let that add to the heap of okay so we're invading all americans privacy and security so that we can get uh so we can buy an innocent a, a not guilty verdict for this person who may not or may or may not have killed someone um but, you know, our our characters are just so darn bantery that we're not going to think about that. It's just offensively unlikable and smarmy and with no concern at all. Like, there's no sense of, of we're infringing on people's rights and their privacy and all this stuff. But it's for the greater good because we're saving innocent people. And, and it doesn't really hurt anyone if we manipulate and control this group of 12 people like they're freaking puppets like they have no free will or no choice and can be easily manipulated um because that's what's more important is is stopping someone's an innocent person's life from from being ruined no sense of that um every everything they say or guess they are right about they're always right um they read every person correctly what if you know, they did all of this they undermined the experienced lawyer who we're not supposed to like because he's stuffy uh, and he, do, he he wants to do his job to the best of his ability and he's qualified. So, you know, that's not a reason to listen to him because he doesn't have the snappy zingers. And he doesn't, you know, like in, in, in the dick measuring contest that they have at the beginning of the episode, he loses and he doesn't take that well. So that's a reason to not like him. Um, but everything I just I'm just rambling. This is not a st- I should have structured my rant more, Noel. But 
everything about this show, including its use and then total waste of Hamilton's Christopher Jackson, the general. Here comes the general to stand there and like have like just know the right things that of course come up into come into play of like oh well he's wearing this and she's wearing that and this means this thing about it and optics are so like it's so privileged it's so like it's they make the point in the opening frames of this that the rich already control the entire legal system and then proceed to reinforce that throughout. It's not like they're working for the underdogs. They're working for people who they've already established are likely going to get off anyways because they can buy a, a not guilty verdict. They present that as a bad thing and then proceed to make the entire show be that. I don't understand how this is a thing. I don't, I just like, I don't understand why anybody would watch this first episode and then watch a second episode of this show. I found the messaging of it abhorrent. I found the, it offended, like, just, like, gratingly unlikable. And I just, the more I think about the philosophy behind it and the fact that here we're on CBS and we're not invited to question or consider the morality of it in any way, it just makes me more and more upset. So I had a, it sounds like I had a much stronger reaction to Ball than you did, Noel. I think that's fair to say, yes. <laughs> any thoughts on any of that or just like Kate it's not worth this irritation <laughs> well no it's worth the irritation um, I think that your point about I got hung up on like the ethics of what they're doing and the legalities of what they're doing with the NSA um, information and the data um, mining mm-hmm. um, but it also just feels very much of a pace with like something like person of interest which operates in a very similar manner through mm-hmm. the surveillance state, but the difference is, is that I don't think Bull can ramp up into this weird sci-fi dystopia of, of warring AIs to question this entire idea of the surveillance state after positioning it as something as a positive. Um, so there's no way for Bull to really back away from that sort of thing and say, well, we're not going to do this anymore. We'll have to do this on our own, guys. Elbow grease. It's not going to happen because it's too handy of a narrative shortcut for the show to not have all that access, which is why it's there. It's entirely the reason why it's there. It saves saves them and saves us from having to follow and go through trash of jurors to find out what we can cobble together about them. It's just it's done very quickly in a way to expedite narrative need and computer hand wave technology tv hacking magic and Um, to tie into our conversation earlier what this does is it normalizes the invasion of people's privacy in the same way that fallon on the trump on fallon normalizes his abhorrent behavior as something that we shouldn't think about and that really really bothers me yeah no you're totally correct and it bothers me as well i just yeah, it's just it was it's just a bad show, and mm-hmm. um, even like the end of it with the one juror to swing things. Oh God, just it's like, terrible! Stop, stop trying to figure people out. It's okay. She's like, oh my God, seriously, show just scale it back a little bit. Yeah, you're hitting so, this really hard. So, can you imagine he's got daddy issues, huh? Who'd have thunk? Yeah. 
And hey, Dr. Bull's not the only one who can read people. I mean, come on. It's just... It, it, this it, this it, run-of-the-mill juror without four PhDs, um, which, by the way, he doesn't have four PhDs. He just has a PhD in four different areas and specialties. He doesn't have four PhDs, so... <laughs> yeah. Well, but at least he's a certified psychologist, you know? At right. least they, they did make him actually have a background in this which you know some of those doctors on tv really really don't yeah but uh yeah so i just i disliked everything about it of course at the end they 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 show him showing up to the crime the the to the to arrest the the woman who's responsible because he knew that too he knew that she did it when the only way we knew that she did it was because we saw her look at a a necklace that he shouldn't know exists but you know, he I'm knew sure from the that cops. One interaction with her. Yeah, and and the cops just like, uh, n- we're happy to have him come along to the to to watch her get arrested. It's just so contrived and terrible. It's just, I really like everything that they're doing. In the last ten minutes is to try to get us to like Bull. But you know what you should do? You should get us to like Bull in the first five minutes so that we will then put up with his dickishness throughout instead of trying to retroactively say like "Mm, but you were wrong for judging him viewer because really he's just got his daddy issues and who that's relatable i mean let's the fact that he's manipulating a woman over her guilt over her son's death for the entire episode (laughs) that means nothing because he doesn't have a good relationship with his daddy um yeah not a fan i should move on and I'm going to just uh, simmer down now a little bit while you talk about the MacGyver premiere, The Rising. Right, right. So this this starts Friday as we're recording, um, and it, it'll air in like an hour and a half. <laughs> um, and the East Coast as we're recording. And I tweeted that it was laughably bad. And laughably bad is the best way to describe this. Um, it's different from like offensively bad in the same way that Kate just decided to just tear into Bull uh, just now. But um, to be anything more than laughably bad would, and I mentioned this to um, Nicole on Twitter, is that for it to be anything more than laughably bad means I would have had to have expectations for it, which I had none. But it would also mean that the show itself needed to have expectations for itself. And it does not even have that going for it. Um, So this is a reboot of the 80s and early 90s action series featuring Richard Dean Anderson as a guy who does crazy things with random objects and gets out of tight spots and that sort of thing. And, you know, back in the 80s, that was a really novel idea. Um, it's not a novel idea anymore, and it comes through very clearly in, in this premiere of MacGyver, in which one of the first cool MacGyver-esque things that we see him do is <gasps> lift a fingerprint using tape off a champagne flute. Okay. <laughs> right, exactly. It's just like, I know how to do that, MacGyver. Everyone knows how to do that, MacGyver. We've all seen it, MacGyver. Um... Mm-hmm. But then there are just a number of other things that he does that aren't particularly MacGyvery, or they're con- so convoluted when something else would have been much simpler. So, for instance, to smoke out Vinnie Jones. Yes, Vinnie Jones is in the premiere, guys, to play Vinnie Jones. Um, 
to smoke him out of a hotel instead of, you know, just tripping the fire alarm or setting off the fire alarm with some newspaper and a match. He's just like, well, we're going to take these two chemicals and some aluminum foil and we're going to take this and put it in a trash can pail to produce smoke without fire. And it'll be really cool and not very destructive. And it's just, but why didn't you just put the paper in the same trash can you're using and just toss a match in there have a fire extinguisher ready you could have had the same effect and no damage Mm -hmm. so it doesn't make any sense that you did it like this um it's it's convoluted in bad ways um the big twist of the episode which they've been downplaying the pre in the previews is that the woman from revolution um spurkados spurkados tracy spurkados mispronouncing that last name um gets killed in the cold open but she's not really dead guess what she's the antagonist (laughs) or is working with the antagonist and it's it's bad better Um, than fridging not a lot better than fridging not a lot better but it motivates like mac to be like sad for like three months and to really commit himself but there's also a number of other things where like macgyver works for this super secret the cia doesn't even know about them black ops agency baseball uh, that need to break a hacker out of jail to get the information off of Tra- tracy's picardos's computer because their tech guy can't do it and it's just like wait what you guys run this elite thing and you have to break the hacker out of prison <laughs> well not break just take the hacker out of prison so it's it's not good. There's a lot of there's a lot of just sheer convolutedness to get to point A to point B. MacGyver has a cover he as of something I don't remember what it is, but he has a snarky, funny best friend who's black, of course. Mm-hmm. Um, Sandrine Holt, who I love, whom I love, I love her, mm-hmm. is the uh, chief for want of a better word who has to manage macgyver and his rogue ideas and george eads from law and order not law and order from csi who's the muscle and the hacker and all their wild ways she has to babysit them and it's bad don't watch it don't watch it um i'm gonna you're going to but but. i'm glad i know this going in i can have some like can crack a beer and have some popcorn ready to help me get through it yeah. yeah, so I, this is not recommended by any stretch of the imagination, which, again, isn't surprising because, like I mentioned when we did Premiere Week, this MacGyver pilot went through two different versions, and this is the one CBS was happiest with. Um, yeah. After they scrapped almost the entire cast, except for the guy playing MacGyver and, I think, ads. And, yeah, so... Yeah, no. I mean, the only thing that I can say good about it is that its expectations are going to be really low because CBS's expectations for Fridays are just whatever. And as long as they perform well, and as long as they provide a decent lead into Hawaii Five O, then you're probably okay. But there's really literally no reason to watch this. Instead, what you should do is watch Limitless on Netflix because it's the exact same show, but way better. But like really good. With right, a exactly. Visual style and very and like the, not interesting pilot, but should think it's just much much better by episode three, episode four. Yeah, and that's the other thing about this MacGyver pilot is that it apes a lot of like Limitless's stylistically. So there are split screens that are, don't serve any purpose, um, and MacGyver provides a voiceover to explain things that he's doing. Of course, and he does. 
but it's not good mainly because again the guy and i didn't mention this but the guy playing macgyver is just dull he's wooden and there's no sense of fun or whimsy to it it's just, it's i don't compared to the two major reboots this year of lethal weapon and macgyver i really legitimately don't understand why this macgyver pilot exists yeah yeah you need a tv star in that role yeah and they don't have one yeah richard anderson say what you will about him but he's a tv star he had macgyver and then he was on like 10 seasons of sg1 and that show despite the various flaws and various points it's run was always fun yeah. It needs to be fun. You need to have a very charismatic figure in that role. And Lethal Weapon has it in yeah. both of their leads. Yeah, that makes a huge difference. It makes huge, like you can't, like, huge, huge difference. Well, I don't look forward to watching that. I will yeah. chime in next week if I have anything to add. I doubt I will. Uh, <laughs> but I spent, spent my time this week uh, with Halt and Catch Fire, and she was. And I thought it was terrific. I pretty much love this episode. So gorgeously directed. That was the thing that I kept coming back to time and again throughout the episode. I loved the framing. I loved the direction. What did you think about this episode? Well, tell me more, because my throat's really sore, actually, um, from post-nasal <laughs> Fair enough. Uh, well, this episode was was directed by Michael Morris. Um, it, it, and and what I really liked uh, about this is I, th- I, I think of framing a lot, particularly this time of year, watching like the past couple of years because of Mr. Robot, which is so notable for its framing. But what I was picking up on in this one and i started like actively tracking it about halfway through the episode um but the positioning of the characters they tended to be in the corner of the frames they tended to be like you saw a lot of the space behind them um and it it was really a lot of close shots as well hauled to catch fire likes his close-ups um so i i just thought it was a lot of time, a lot, lot of characters thinking and responding and reacting and feeling, which is makes sense based on where the, the season is and what what's going on in this episode. But I just thought it looked impeccable. The lighting, the cinematography, um, and the the framing took advantage of that throughout. It also heightened the isolation of so many of these characters. And then when you had, for example, um, Cam. And Gordon playing the video game on the couch. You got the shot of them. They're centered. They're right next to each other. They're very much together in that moment. That only heightens the isolation of the other characters. Um, even when you have Gordon, uh, sorry, when you have Boz and Annabeth Gish, I can't remember the character's name, out to dinner. There's a you don't you didn't have the constant frame of them together the way that we had had with um, Cam and Gordon. There was more cutting back and forth, like over over you know back and forth with with the two of them. Um, which, and of course, given how that, that evening ends up, you know, less surprising, um, not surprising, but, um, yeah, I, I thought that the continuation of the, 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 or I should say the payoff of the, the lie from Donna to Cam, uh, that we get in this episode, uh, is very effective. I, I, it's, it's how, you know, we're like, no, I don't like when they fight, but, um, we've had that earlier this season this week, we were given that, but we're also given an Oh snap moment of Cam telling Donna that she knows that Donna lied to her by having, is it Diane come to the, come to the office and like, like the, there was so much payoff in that for Donna's screw up and you could enjoy the justified anger of Cam while also, uh, in like, really worrying for the the status of their relationship and the company and what this means like 
they did a good job of capturing both of those in, in the performers and in their reactions, but all and just in the tone of the episode, like that opening scene, you can feel, you can feel Cam's anger and you can also feel Donna's anxiety and the, like the way that they map all that throughout the episode, I think was very effective. Also Super Brothers, Super Mario Brothers 2, right? Feels one. That was that, was that well, one? It's two in like Japan, but it was the first one for us. The it was first the first one for one. us. It was the one I had. Yeah. yeah. As a kid. Lots Super of Super Mario Brothers 2 is the ones with the turnips. Oh, okay. Throw. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. No, that's, but Super Mario Brothers, uh, th- that particular one is the one that I played a lot as a kid, along with Dr. Mario, along with Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles. Uh, I was quite adept at the underwater level. I don't know about you, but. Uh, I, I, like Cameron, hate the underworld <laughs> <laughs> fair enough uh, but but you know and watching donna go off to diane's house and enjoy the luxury of it and you, the subtext being if they sell out this she could have this something like this but they never say that and, and again i appreciate the way that the writers trust the audience and, and are willing to show what these characters are feeling rather than having them constantly narrate their thoughts um i thought that the um the cam and donna scene of when donna's high uh was nice and something that hopefully we will see reflected not counterpointed um in in the season soon uh it's likely to be counterpointed but it would be nice if it was reflected um but yeah i just thought that it was very stylish affecting and uh with a lot of really touching moments so what did you think um no i agree with you very much about the aesthetics um particularly like the boz and diane scene uh is terrific because they're they're not all, the the great thing about them is is that they're not given a great deal of negative space in a lot of those scenes. We get them from almost a behind the back shot, shot reverse shot, with them against the wall, base with them leaning up against the wall, and there's both isolation, but in like them drawing together, there's no room for them to move away from one another within those scenes, within how that scene is shot. And it just stares out and screams this at you. And it's very, very well done. So that when it breaks, when they have finished having sex in the car and Boz is just like, yeah, I'm going to go home now. And it's just like, what? And it's a very good way of, juxtaposing the scenes and making these kind of character relationships very clear. Um, I also really enjoyed the stuff with Donna in the house. Um, even if uh, Diane's daughter and her two college friends showing up um, felt overly contrived to get her to the mushroom scene. Um, it was fine. Um, while you're talking about handholding and that sort of thing, I felt like a lot of that um the a lot of like donna's confession felt a little on the nose um to the mushroom cameron (laughs) i I say that as if cameron were depicted by a mushroom but that is not correct um but just this fact that donna still still sees herself very much as the mom as the one who doesn't get talked about as the one who is just as good but Again, no one cares about, which is driven home in in that scene where uh, Diane's daughter's friend asks if she's Cam. And she's like, oh, no, 
I'm the other one. <laughs> and there's mm-hmm. something really interesting about that and something really compelling about that. And I really, really like that idea. But to have it like her vocalize that as opposed to the way in which they're very subtle about how she feels about the luxury of Diane's house, like you pointed out, it it kind of like tra- clashed just a little bit for me. I mean, it's not enough to go, oh, the show, blah, but it's just it's a weird you did this one thing very subtly, but this other thing we're not going to do very subtly because she's on shrooms. And I just went, but it's a, it's a minor, it's a very minor knock in what was otherwise a very strong episode. Um, I'm glad Cameron is now aware to a certain degree of Gordon's illness and his cancer and the lingering effects of that. And I think that the only other thing to kind of wrap up how I felt about it and to kind of like bring everything that you said full circle about uh, connections and this sort of thing, which has been a big part of this season so far is the fact that Cameron's not able to tell anyone that she's got, she's gotten married until after she's gotten the ham radio set up. So she needed physical distance from someone to tell them the biggest thing that happened. And it's not even a physical distance, not only physical distance, but then she needed a old form of communication tell it like she couldn't do it through the computer because the computer is where like she lives it's where she works it's where her relationship with what's his name is and the conversation Tom, tom is and where they have the conversation about her telling him so that's why she needs this archaic form of communication to even express the idea and she what guts me is that she's so happy that she's able to do it. Mm-hmm. And she sounds so happy and relieved that she's able to tell someone, but that she still had to like hide it away through this very, this old school mediated form of communication is just really, really interesting, really great. And I was very, very excited by that final scene. And I realized that we've done all of this and not talked about the fact that Joe blew up his company again. <laughs> yeah. Um, but b- before Joe's we do that, though. boring. <laughs> oh, well, yeah, there's that. Um, I do also like that now we have confirmation, at least when he's talking to Cam, that Gordon isn't talking to voices in his head on the yeah. ham. Which I think I was waiting for them to imply, be like, have that be the subtext or what like what we learned from the ham this week with Cameron being in there with him you know yeah like I was waiting for that to happen I was so glad that they didn't at least in this episode um but yeah we should talk about Joe we should talk about the scene with Cam and Joe yeah uh very glad that nothing happened there um and yeah he I mean like i I totally buy Joe doing this. I think it makes sense. I think it takes the season off into a different direction than we might have been anticipating. And I appreciate that. Um, I enjoy Matthew Lillard. And so I've been liking his appearances. Aren't you amazed that we're at the point where Matthew Lillard can convincingly play a board member of a technology company? Yeah, it's nice. Cause, like, cause Isn't that up, amazing? <laughs> well, because he, he was really great on The Bridge and he was yes. a lot of fun on Good Wife. But those are very like quirky oddball like characters. Right. So, yeah, having him as a stuffed shirt here, it's fun. It's, it's, yeah. it's, I always enjoy when he pops up. So, yeah, it was nice to see him get more to do in this in this episode. Uh, yeah, how do you feel about it? Well, I, I am excited that it's something to stop Joe and Ryan from being on their own show. Mm-hmm. Um, 
And it's just more of Joe's self-destructive behavior because, I mean, he's blown up his company again. And by saying in a legally binding deposition, yeah, I stole all of this shit. It's not mine, guys. And mm-hmm. it's just like, oh, great. And I'm. it's one of those things where it's very much one of those come to Jesus type of moments that would not have happened had he just not been basically relieved of all his duties yeah. at uh, the at the firm. So he would have never done this otherwise if he didn't have anything else to lose. Mm-hmm. And that's that's just, that's Joe. It's just Joe. He burns shit down when he's got nothing else to go for. But he's also like struggling to reconnect with those people as well like ryan's a fine surrogate but he's not gordon and he's not cameron yeah and he needs gordon and cameron yep but he doesn't deserve them so he doesn't get them show he doesn't get them but um (laughs) well and any reasonable situation even after this because i really like the fact that they acknowledge that gordon didn't really would have liked the money but also just didn't care about the money Mm -hmm. in this situation and now he doesn't have that now he has the situation in which gordon Gordon, in which joe comes clean so i I would not buy a reconciliation between these people and joe because that's not what this show is at this point Mm -hmm. um but a detente of sorts to keep us in the 80s um would make sense i think yeah, I agree. I agree. We should move on to Queen Sugar, The Darker Sooner. And I don't have much to say about it in this one other than I continue to enjoy the show. I like that, like what I had said the previous week of not necessarily, of wanting to see the show address uh, the fact that just because the, the woman making the claim against Charlie's husband was a prostitute, did not, or was a sex worker, is a sex worker, doesn't mean anything for what they've been saying so i like that immediately that is addressed in this episode uh you know watching raf angel run up against wall is uh well handled here i like that they are keeping the characters more together and i like that they gave Regina wesley's character more and nova they gave nova. her oh yeah a lot more definition in this episode in, yes. in a way that i thought made sense so i thought it was a solid episode i like the stuff we got with with also charlie's son um, they spread the characters out, but managed to still make the show feel contained enough and connected enough. Um, so I thought they, I thought this was a solid episode. Right. No, your point about Nova is especially really good, even though some of those scenes are kind of clunky because they're so expositional driven, mm-hmm. expositionally driven. Um, but the big strength that I'm seeing with the show and your idea of the characters being spread out, but still connected is like really key to this is that everyone went back to their own lives and is dealing with their own stuff now. And Mm -hmm. the conflict between these lives that have been largely disconnected from one another um, have to continue connected now because of the farm. And on any other type of show like this, then there'd be the struggle of uprooting Charlie's life from Los Angeles to go and stay in Louisiana and instead the show's just like oh no she's gonna go back and she's gonna deal with agents she's gonna deal with publicists she's gonna deal with lawyers and all this stuff because she's got her own life going on that just because someone died and left them a firm doesn't mean that that life just stops existing and that's 
there's a great deal of verisimilitude that comes through with this because Ralph Angel's the only one who's committed to the farm. Everyone else, the farm is a side project that is ancillary to their other lives and their other livelihoods is the other key thing about that. So the conflict being driven by the fact that they all want this farm to do well, but they all also have their lives outside of the farm, except for Ralph Angel, is really, really interesting and really, really good. And I really enjoy how that conflict is being expressed um, even if, again, the Nova stuff is a little clunky because so much of it is expositional, exposition-driven. Um, but it's all really well done. And like you said, I really enjoyed the stuff with Charlie's son. And I loved the bombshell of his realization that she's been cheating on him. And his response to that is just way outside of where Charlie is in her response to the situation. And it's just all very well done, and I'm very excited to see it continue and morph and develop. And yeah, I know this show's still really, really good. Mm -hmm. Yep, definitely. Um, We should move, though. We're running long. We should move Mm -hmm. on to our last show of the week, and that is Mr. Robot, which has Nelly Python Part 2. I imagine people will be expecting me to have a lot to say about this, but I don't think we do. Well, no, because this... And I tweeted this from a friend of ours both. Um, well, I don't know if you're friends with Eric, but I mean, I'm Twitter friends with Eric and Eric mm-hmm. writes for the TV club for, with you. But he tweeted that this was a that episode six of Mr. Robot was really great immediately after this episode aired. And he's absolutely correct. This should have been episode five or six. And instead it was the finale. And it's just like, you guys just pace this all the f*** wrong. Um, but we all know that I have major issues with the show overall, but... Um, major issues. Yeah, major issues. Um, but as someone who very much wanted a larger payoff for all of the shenanigans that they were doing this season, and how did you feel about the fact that their big payoff was, we're going to blow up a building maybe next season? <laughs> yeah, their big payoff part, part two, phase two. It's phase one again. Yeah, but just the physical stuff. But the physical version. It's just like, you know, how we spent the beginning of this season with the characters going, oh no, we shouldn't have done this. It didn't actually accomplish anything and it and didn't actually make the, whatever they thought it was going to do, which was very poorly examined in the first season. They acknowledged that at the beginning of the second season and said, see, it wasn't very thought out by our characters. Now they're not sure about it. And they had the, the the whole payoff to the season be, except for, I guess, Mr. Robot, because Elliot doesn't think it's a good idea um, when he figures out what's happening. And um, Tyrone Rick, thinks it's a brilliant idea for some reason. But we're but yeah, we'll exactly. get there. <laughs> we're never given any reason to th- like they, nobody explains what they want to have happen in any meaningful or satisfying way. And the payoff that I wanted was not actually about this phase two so much, but it was more about White Rose and the whole plant thing. I wanted that payoff. We didn't get anything with that at all of how White Rose is connected to Angela and how like that part, like that stuff and what, uh, and how White Rose is connected via this plant with Mr. Prince or something. Spangler. It's, Spangler. It really, yeah, doesn't Spangler. matter. Um, and we, again, we don't get any, of that. We don't get any motivation for White Rose. Um, and in based on the behavior of that character through the season, it should be very specific and very personal. 
And again, like I said, we don't get it. So um, what we do get here is just sort of an, it's just very much, it feels like an anticlimax that is presented as a climax. Um, so it wasn't hugely satisfying. Um, I, the, they had led us so strongly by the hand to think that maybe Terrell's in his head. That that scene they of they overplayed that hand so badly. Well, that that it was like, well, okay, he's he's thinking he's had, but it's like I first of all, I have no sense that the show. I don't believe the show would kill him, Elliot. Right. Uh, but I do believe they would shoot him. So and they that did. Whole, and they did. So the whole scene, there was no tension for me because there was. I did not believe them that Terrell maybe was in his head, and I didn't believe them that. I didn't have any sense that they wouldn't shoot him. So then that, as he's doing all of this, I was like, okay. Um, now, I thought it was fine, I should say. We're saying all these negative things. I thought it was fine. I didn't, it wasn't a new level of of of, of issue, of like the issues we've been having with the show. It just felt like more of the same. Um, the stuff with Angela um, that we get in the, at the end, this notion that she's been connected to Tyrell at some point, Tyrell, that just, again, continues to double down this idea that are we ever going to get a reason for why Angela's involved in all of this? And I don't think we're ever going to get a satisfying one. Um, the stuff with Dom and Darlene works better. Um, the notion that they've actually known whoever all these people are in the five nine attacks this whole time. The, the cops, um, I think, make sense and is handled well enough. But um, again, I just don't really care. So... We, we, you know, the, 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 the one scene that I do want to specifically mention is that blue skies oh, God. bullshit, which was just so terrible. bad. And it kept going. I was like, you want me to believe that this FBI agent would talk like that? Cause I don't, it's horrible. Right. Uh, and it just keeps going. And that was when I was like, okay, clearly, you know what? I, I can be out. I'm out. And that's fine. I've disconnected emotionally to the point where I can just read recaps for the show next season. I don't feel the need to prioritize it. Yes, there's a lot of really terrific acting. Yes, the framing is interesting. Yes, cinematography. It's like well made. But the writing is such that I just, I, are you kidding me with this? And then the post-credits tag brought back the two other members of F Society and set up the idea. That, and Leon comes up to them. And we enjoyed Leon. At least I enjoyed Leon at the beginning of the season. It set up, sets up the idea that they are that these other two members of F Society are going to work in the in the next season on undoing Phase One. They found a way to undo it somehow. Um, while Elliot or Mister Robot or Terrell and Angela work towards repeating it with Phase Two, and then there's Leon there who's involved in some way. So if they have like a thing where the other F Society members who I'm more interested in are working against Terrell and Elliot, who I don't care about and would enjoy them getting some comeuppance, and the middle is White Rose, and they give a good reason for White Rose's motivations. That could be really interesting. I have no faith that the show will actually do that in a season three, though. So that's something where I can just sit back, listen to the conversation, read recaps, and then jump back in if I feel so compelled. I say that now. Next summer, I may renege on that, but that's sort of where I'm at. Right. Um. So I just did not care um which isn't a surprise like i haven't cared all season um but this was just flagrantly boring like it was long setup for next season and it spoke to the fact that i feel like the idea that this show had any plan beyond season 
the first season was questionable at best. Um, mainly because at least the first season has a very contained story to it. And this season had no story for basically. It was just like, all right, um, this thing happened and we're going to deal with the fallout kind of, but not really. And we're going to deal with four episodes of Elliot questioning his mental state. And then we're going to find out he was in prison um, for reasons that don't matter. And, but false reality, but in a way that doesn't make any sense because where was Kirk Robinson in prison and why was he in a van and why was he in that house and why was he eating alone while on his, why were any of this thing? He's the warden. They showed that. Oh, was he with the warden? Yeah, he was the warden. Oh, see, I missed that. But it didn't, but it didn't matter. That was all filler. None of that mattered. It just, they needed to give a reason for him to be let out, but it could have been anything. Yeah. Okay. No, I totally missed that he was the warden. Thank you for telling me. Um, so it was just, by the end, it was just like, oh, so you just want to, blow up the building with all the paper in it and the company is stupidly moving all the paper to one location which makes sense but also you've been the you've been the target of a major terrorist attack so yeah no do that that's a great idea guys thinking it through of course layers kate maybe it's exactly what they're supposed to do yeah so i mean there's nothing in the world that's going to make me watch the third season of this um short of strapping me down clockwork orange style and making Mm -hmm. me watch it um but there's no reason to for me to tune into this next season um there's there's just there's no there there anymore like the show very clearly overplayed its desire for novelty and the creative free reign that was given bogged down the show significantly from the sitcom cold open 20 minute sketch um at like episode five or six to the aforementioned you're not in burn notice there are no blue skies out there characters like you are not welcomed um as this weird meta representation of the show being the demarcation point for usa's rebranding effort um isn't cute it's not interesting it's not funny and like you said an fbi agent would not realistically speak like that and while this is a show that operates in a very heightened sense of reality it's too noticeable for them to be operating that also burn notice didn't have cops in it you jackass (laughs) (laughs) yeah it's just just again it's that emphasis and underlining as we've been complaining about the season of style over substance yeah. and of reasoning being because it would be cool and yeah. that's not a good enough reason and for you you're saying that this just really heightened to you the sense that um there wasn't a plan after season one now the original discussion i remember around the show was that this had actually started out as a movie yeah and as a premise for a movie a setup and script or whatever for a movie i don't know if the script was written but you know set up for a movie but that the first season was like oh that's only act one and the more I think about season two, the more that that makes sense. Because when it became a TV show, you could add on all the stuff about identity and the, like the, the twist with Darlene and this other stuff. But if, if, act one, if act one of your story is this collapse, then this part is just like the lead up to act two. But it's like you if you take out all the filler here yeah. in this season, and all of a sudden it's making a lot more sense of no, 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 no. This was all supposed to be like two and a half hours total. And in season one, they were able to to twist things around to extend it to like 
was it 10, 13? Yeah, 10 and episodes. And they had really solid procedural beats in that in that season as well that helped immensely. And this season had no proced- very few procedural beats. And mm-hmm. you saw how just spineless the story became. Yeah, but as soon as they kick the story into high gear with the end of the first season, you can't do that in the same way in the second season without have, running to the problems that they've shown. You know, just spinning your wheels that they've shown in this season. So, um, yeah, I'm sure lots of people really like this finale, really continue to enjoy the show. Um, it won't surprise anybody that we don't. Uh, but I feel like, um, again, it's just like the stuff that the show does well. And the like the act, these actors are all very good. But there's too much good TV out there for that yeah. to be enough for me to, to watch stuff that irritates me every week when there's plenty of stuff that is terrific apparently that i haven't made time for so yeah i'm 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 ready to be done with mr robot i'm sure you're very glad <laughs> no i am like my sense of duty and guilt would not have made me watch season three <laughs> yeah but yeah. yeah yeah fair enough uh well what wins your week in tv your week in drama i should say steven oh wait there was no steven universe tears. this week tears uh i'll give it to halt and catch fire this week uh very solid episode uh for all the reasons we've already discussed uh what about you when when your week in drama? oh definitely halt and catch fire they let me play opera again yay <laughs> good times a few show notes here at the end of our week in tv you can find a post-it for this episode at theteleverse.org where you can leave us comments and let us know what you thought of the week's tv you can email us theteleverse at gmail.com you can find us on itunes with an m4a chaptered feed and an mp3 unchaptered feed and you can also find us on stitcher we'd appreciate ratings and reviews at either location you can also find us on facebook like the page start up a conversation there and of course we're both on twitter i am at the televerse and noel you are at noel rk this is a long one this week because of premiere week hopefully we'll be back to more our winnow it down a lot (laughs) yeah two to two and a half hour range next week um with this next couple weeks of premieres they'll be longer but then we should be back to more our usual runtime soon hopefully she said knowing the editing bay loomed um but now uh we will be heading off to our dvd shelf with friend of the show very glad he's back of course mr les chapel from the av club uh talking justice league unlimited so we'll be right back after this the original Justice League has become a memory. I am resigning from the Justice League. What's going to happen to the League now? We rebuild. From the ashes of that great conflict, a new team has arisen. A much, much bigger team. Each of you brings something different to the table. Old friends, new heroes. And as usual, plenty of bad guys jumping up to get beat down. Calm down. And I'll let you go. How about you kiss my ass? Watch out, evildoers. There's nowhere to run. Because this year, they're all around you. The League is unlimited. Tsunami presents an all-new original series starring every superhero worth cheering for. And then some. Justice League Unlimited. Premiering July 31st at 8.30 p.m. And where am I exactly? Among friends. There's strength in numbers.
We're back with the Televerse. This is Kate Kulsick, joined as ever by Noel Kirkpatrick. And this week on the DVD shelf, listeners, it's time for another dip into the the DC animated universe. I'm very excited that we're going to be talking about uh, Justice League Unlimited. And here, returning to the podcast, friend of the show, helping us talk about Justice League Unlimited, it's from the AV Club, Les Chappell. Les, welcome back. Hey-o! <laughs> so, so glad that you're back uh, to help us talk Justice League uh, Unlimited. I need to be very clear with this. Because there's the whole Justice League, Justice League Unlimited thing. Do you know, Les, when that, when did that happen? Was that like while it was still airing, they decided to like rename it? Or was that like a later thing? What's the whole Justice League, Justice League Unlimited thing? Uh, I don't really have, I honestly don't really know, I I honestly don't know the answer to that question. I know that the first two seasons of it are called Justice League, and then the last three are called Justice League Unlimited. But yeah, I honestly don't know enough about the lore and the myth and the mythos of the show to really comment on it. So, Noel, do you have an answer to that question? Um, I think it was mostly to mark the shift in like format um, away from those uh, two parters that they did throughout Justice League. Um, and then to also declare the shift in cast basically so you had an unlimited number of heroes and such as long as they were not associated with batman (laughs) because of the bat embargo was still in fact at the time so i think that's what it was it was basically just like okay we're gonna shift into these single like self-contained episodes that aren't like two or three parts and we're gonna do episodes that maybe have one or two of the recognizable justice league members and then they're going to team up with Hawk and Dove. And it's going to be <laughs> awesome. Even if, you know, the Hawk and Dove episode is ac- is okay. But I'm just saying, they team up with a bunch of, like, random folks who, for the most part, have never been depicted in either live action or in animation before. So I think that that was the big impulse behind it. Can we just talk for a moment about how weird it is to hear Fred Savage be Hawk? Because it's like... <laughs> I heard it was like, wait a second, that you're not playing Dove? I mean, like, yay and everything, get to play different kinds of things. But I just, I hear Fred Savage, I don't go to a hawk place. Right. And it's actually funny that you mentioned that because they were originally cast in what you think they would have been, but they switched roles at the last second. Okay. Yeah. So th- they just decided, eh, let's change it up. And they changed it up. It's kind of like the same thing that happened with the show, like... Apparently, CCH Pounder just never knew what she was doing when she came to read for them. Mm-hmm. She was just like, what am I doing? Am I doing? What is this? Oh, OK, right. And she would just read it and nail it. Because she's CCH Pounder. CCH Pounder. Or she's C goddamn C goddamn H goddamn Pounder. Right. No, she's fantastic. So it was just one of those situations. Yeah. And that actually does. Uh, I mean, not to not to jump ahead or anything, but no. mentioning Fred, oh, but mentioning Fred Savage and CCH Pounder gets to one of what I think my all, my favorite things about Justice League Unlimited is is just that the voice the cat the voice cast in this show is fantastic. It's just full of people that it, some people that you obviously loved from pre loved from previous uh, animated series. So you've got Kevin Conroy's Batman. You've got uh, Clancy Brown voicing Lex Luthor. You have Powers Booth voicing Gorilla Grodd. You've got ra- and then you and but then you've got things like randomly Nathan Fillion's going to show up voicing the vigilante, a uh, cowboy superhero. 
it, they they just did it. Andrew Romano, the essential voice director of the show, she did a great job casting it. And it's just all of them make the characters feel so lived in. There really aren't any any off notes in the casting, in my opinion. Well, yeah, and if you're a uh, if you're a fan of TV or you know nerd TV specifically, there's a lot of you know voices that it's fun to to listen for. I mean, you talk about um, you already mentioned Nathan Fillion. If you're a you know, Whedonverse fan. I mean, you've got Marina Baccarin is a lot of fun as Black Canary. You got Gina Torres as Vixen. I mean, it's, it's you, you know, Amy Acker does Huntress. Like there's a lot of, of, you know, names that, and voices that people will recognize. I mean, John McGinley is Adam. I mean, there's just, there's, it's just a lot of fun to play spot the voice. If you're, you know, if you're, if, if you're someone with an ear for it, like, like Dennis Farina as Wildcat. I was watching Ron, Cat and the Canary, and I was like, "That's oh, we miss you, R.I.P." Nah, Ron, per- Ron, Ron Perlman as Orion. I mean, yeah, guys, guys, yeah. Jeffrey Combs. Okay, it's, I, it's the end of the discussion. You read my mind. That's where I was going next. I gotta say, of all the characters that show up in these episodes, um, I didn't watch all of them. I watched a lot of them, though. I, I think I had the most fun spending more time with the question. Because yes. you were you were drawn to his eccentric charm. <laughs> well, because it's he just gets to they, they pepper him in, I think, a good amount, uh, like not too much, not uh, too little. And, and they really let him just kind of poke at the other characters. He's there. He, he serves a purpose that often Batman is set, you know, Set is given just to be like the the person raising the doubts or you know being cynical, um, and so that lets ba- Batman do other things. And they they have a sense of humor about him too. So they're throwing in enough ridiculous things that it doesn't the character doesn't uh, get old. Do you go Do you go through my trash? Please, I go through everyone's trash. <laughs> I, I yeah, you basically just could just keep quoting the question left and right. And uh, apparently, uh, on the DVD commentaries, the cre- the writers actually say that once they introduced the question, they really had to fight to just not make the show all about him. It, could, it would be tempting. I would definitely in the in the writers' room. I, I would imagine it's very uh, very tempting. I think a lot of like Kate and Les, your points about him poking at people and that sort of thing is something that I feel like they intended for their green arrow to do initially he was set I feel like he was set up to do that and then they just went no we're gonna do it with the question instead maybe because either Ken Schreiner who voices green arrow and does a really great job he's best known for doing soap operas so he was on general hospital for years and I think he's actually on it again um, but it was just like, oh, we're gonna just, we've got Jeffrey Combs coming back from doing Scarecrow for a couple episodes in the Batman Superman series, and we're just gonna, we're gonna let this guy just go crazy, and it's so good. <laughs> <laughs> I gotta say, Green Arrow doesn't work for me as well here as I would have liked, and I think, mm-hmm. honestly, I, I do, it's so limiting of me to have this keep coming back but i really do think i just have a hang up with the visuals because i just see him and i see uh old timey 1939 uh robin hood is what i see 29 <laughs> oh my goodness is that 29 are are you going for the errol flynn yeah errol flynn yeah i think i think you're right yeah 
Yeah. Anyways, I, I go to the old school Robin Hood every time I see him. And then, but then the stuff that they give him to say and what he's doing just doesn't matter. Like, the, for me, with that character, the split is too, is a little too, I have trouble with it. Where that didn't come up for me is when he's interacting with Black Canary and with a couple of, like, with, there are specific dynamics that really did work for me, though with him yeah i think the interesting thing like looking at green arrow is when you look at the first episode it's it does look like they intended for him to sort of even though this was we'd already had two seasons of the of justice league he set up as sort of our uh point of view character like he's the he's the outsider coming into the justice league at a time when they decided that they want to expand to cover as many heroes as possible and to organize and create a more powerful force and of course, the idea of them creating a powerful force will basically be one of the overarch overarching themes of the series. And so, you, I agree that they. It looks like they wanted to do more with him, but I think po possibly also just because they had so many heroes to play around with, they yeah. didn't want to go. They didn't want to go to that well too heavily. So they got to, as you say, Kate. They got to have. They found w ways that they were able to use him well. So they, you could use him in a relationship with Black... You could basically just put him and Black Canary in a few scenes to banter with each other. And then tail end of season two, they definitely get a lot of mileage out of the... Uh, they go back to that well of having an idea that this guy's the outsider looking in. He has that great line when Superman's basically spitting fire and brimstone and wants to go against Cadmus. He says, I'm the only guy up here without superpowers, and you people scare me. Mm -hmm. So he's... So they, they definitely found... A different way to use him, and I think it was definitely to the it was definitely to the show's betterment that they didn't go that route. And, but I and I would definitely agree, Green Arrow is not the he's not the he's not the point he's not who we were showing up to see for this show. Yeah, well, and and the trouble of having him be the outsider is that is so clearly defined in the first two seasons as Batman's role. He's the outsider. He's the one who won't fully commit to it. He's the one without the superpowers and everything. So that <laughs> when you have Green Arrow show up in that capacity. There feels like there's there's too much overlap there, but I would say that for me that was the one example that I could think of that I think on the whole they do a really good job of changing up which which uh, members of the Justice League they're going to have in a given episode. They by by introducing this, these scores of characters who are now in like the massive institution that is the Justice League that that lets them bring in some more obscure people that lets them avoid running into the problem of. What's a new way we can see Superman be invincible? Yeah, and I, th I, was, I think that actually also does go to what we were talking about earlier, why they switched from Justice League to Justice League Unlimited, was that there's really only... With, there were, they did, and they did a lot with the pairing of those seven original heroes, but there really is only so much you can do in that point, especially with your working on the DC universe. And these, like the DC and Marvel universes are both gifted in having an absolutely massive crop of characters that they can pick from. And it's basically, well, uh, not to be, not no pun intended, but it's limiting. Mm -hmm. <laughs> Definitely. And I think that this is a nice way to segue into what you mentioned, Les, is that they get all these characters and then they immediately, instead of saying, all right, well, we can do this really great big fun thing, which is what they do in season three by and large, because season three is just fun, basically. Um, but the first two seasons are very much, okay, we have this premise of all these superheroes. Now let's make it really complicated and oddly resonant and relevant to the time period. Because this was done in 2000, this was released in 2004. 
And it's just like, all right, so we're going to talk about issues of power and what it means for there to be this superpower and what this does to unbalance the world in a number of very specific ways that feel really relevant. So instead of having to show Superman as invulnerable again or figure out a way for Jean to not be involved, which is what happened a lot in Justice League because Jean has just so many powers. He has all of the um, powers. John, yeah. it's, it's frankly ridiculous how many powers John has after a while. Right. So it's just like, so we're going to put Jean in a watchtower role. So he's not, he's not on the field because he doesn't like being around humans anymore. And then we're going to have Cadmus. We're going to have Amanda Waller. We're going to have all this stuff that deals with politics. And it's just really well executed, at least in my mind, at what a really nice job they did in crafting a big serialized story that really addressed the idea of what superheroes mean. Absolutely. And I think that that's that's sort of an advantage they had because, I mean, Justice League was part of the... It was the next step in the DC animated universe building off Batman the Animated Series and Superman the Animated Series. They'd basic... And and to an extent, Batman Beyond as well, that they'd pushed the limits of what they could do on those those characters and and what they meant to basically the cities that they protected. So they got... And by expanding to more heroes, they got to take the story more. They basically got to go global with it. Like you fully believed that this that these these people presenting themselves was okay. They're not just saving their cities now. They're stepping out into the larger world. And what does that mean for the larger world? Well, it also lets them really play with serialization in a fun way, a standalone serialization. So instead of having like a season-long arc when you have a handful of characters, even just as, I mean, seven characters is not a small number of characters. No, but, no. But, but um, even on Justice League, if you have some massive conspiracy or evil plot by Lex Luthor or something that the characters are... are Slash to, Brainiac. Yes, that the characters are trying to foil, after a while, if it's always the same characters running into pieces of it it can get frustrating if they don't put it all together but when you have this whole range of superheroes that you're drawing on it lets you have the episode that could easily be a standalone where you have supergirl fighting uh, was it galacta galatea. Uh, galatea galatea that's what it was um and and then like at the end of the season that comes or later in the season that comes back in a big way but you could see how you know she has this experience and that's you know a, just a fun kind of doppelganger episode that they do and you don't really necessarily connect that you know with anything else she could be excused for not seeing well of course when this thing happened to very different characters two weeks later i should have realized um so, so by by spreading it out it lets the audience in on like the pieces of a plot coming together without tipping the hands to the characters or getting us frustrated that oh why haven't you talked why haven't you shared this information because <laughs> Because there's so many of them, they're so spread out, but also because it's easy to see how these little pieces don't seem significant. Yeah, and that actually, uh, so that I like the way Superman sort of indirect, like he, it's not the comment that he's making it when he, at the end of the second season, when he talks about disbanding the league, about how they stood up in their tower and looked and looked down on them. That exactly, they were so they had removed themselves and put themselves in a position that they eventually just. They wound up missing the big picture. Yeah. I will say, though, that I there's one element that I did miss significantly from Justice League, 
when we're watching Justice, Justice League Unlimited. And that is because it was such a spread out cast and because you didn't have the same figures recurring frequently. Uh, may, and again, maybe it's just the episodes that I watched. I watched a bunch of them. Like I watched the entire like first, I guess it's season 1.0. Um, but whatever the first 13 and then i watched smatterings of the rest um but i can think of only a handful of episodes where you have women interacting in a significant way because what they usually do if they have two you know female superheroes in the same episode usually they're paired with a guy or they're in a group scene and there's not a lot of actual interaction between the characters um, and so I missed having like, the, the just the counterpoint that you get in Justice League of Wonder Woman and, and Hawkgirl. Um, here, you don't really get that as much. And so while I love that they continue to really feature Wonder Woman in episodes that she's in, like she's constantly saving uh, Batman from falling, <laughs> which I always enjoy. Um, but you, I feel like there were some times that she got slotted into the woman uh, you yeah. know, it, it, rather than yeah. be, ha, making choices or saying dialogue that was informed by her actual backstory. There was a number of times I was watching going like, mm, really? But you're from an island. You don't have any association with, you know, like the episode where they all become kids, for example, was really fun. <laughs> but why would she have any way, like sense of like raising children when she, there aren't like, how did, are there babies or are they tent take they're not really taking care they're not very maternal on Themyscira to my knowledge right they're basically car they're basically like made of clay by the gods or something well Diana's made of clay um the sh the show doesn't go into like how the Amazons reproduce which is good because most of the time when that yeah. happens it's it's a bad idea done really it's done really negatively in the sense that they 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 mate with men, they kill the men, and then they kill any of the male babies that they produce. Mm -hmm. um, at least which is in one of the more recent origin type stories. Um, but there's there's a couple of episodes that do fix that. So I don't know if you got a chance to watch like The Balance, which is in season two, which is basically Diana and um, uh, Hawkgirl teaming up to go into Hades basically to um stop felix faust from taking over tartarus and all this um and that's a really nice episode um for the most part uh but then there's also the less great but um that doesn't satisfy your uh need kate but there's grudge <laughs> match in season three um <laughs> which is um a roulette who's like this club promoter type villain uh who you met in um cat and mary right the Cat and Canary episode um, basically mind controls all the women of the Justice League to fight one another so people can place bets. Yeah, that that episode, <laughs> I mean, part, I mean, yes, that idea is stupid, but re really the, the stupidity of that that bothers me most is, okay, so you figured out how to mind control the Justice League. This is the best you can do. <laughs> but it, it does speak to a larger thing within, within this series that a number of the female characters just either get slotted into the women role, as you say, or they're basically Titania. 
and it's oh that's not great guys or or on the upside you also get like someone like amanda waller who just kicks ass at every turn (laughs) and i i I would also argue in terms of that so as it goes as justice league goes on the relate in original justice league the relationship between hawk girl and green lantern that was a big undercurrent of the store of the story and that comes back in in the justice league unlimited seasons when she eventually rejoins the team and but there's some tension because Green Lantern is with Vixen at that point, and I actually I actually think that 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 could have been a really bad grudgy story, but I like I like the way that both of that both Shaira and Vixen play it off as like all right we're just gonna we're gonna see how this turns out, but in the meantime we're gonna be cool with each other like we're not gonna be catty and snipping at each other because we're after the same man. So the story it's not. I, it's definitely not a story that checks off the boxes in the yeah. way I would like, but I appreciate, but I appreciate that they don't, they don't make it stereotypically that they hate each other because they're, ju- they're after the same man. And there's even an episode where they kind of like work together, actually semi unwillingly at first, but then they're like kind of, they're kind of BFFs by the end, not total BFFs, but for the equivalent of the show, they're actually on really good terms by the end of that episode. Yeah. Well, yeah. And, and when you have so many different characters that you're drawing from, it's easy yeah. it, it, It's easy to wind up being like, well, we're going to have two lead characters, one man, one woman. And at least that tended to be the go-to as opposed to... Because yeah. they, uh, they need to have one of each gender uh, that this, sh- this show represents at least um, so that they could fight villains. <laughs> so like, we need the... The female superhero, so that they can fight the female <laughs> villain, and vice versa. Uh, or there's always like the group of baddies and the group of good good guys, and there's always seems to be a compared a pretty similar gender makeup, which I, I I always find entertaining when that happens. But uh, and when they change it up, it's always nice too. Um, and have have Wonder Woman beating up fake Superman or whatever it was. <laughs> <laughs> oh yes, the Justice Lords. Yes, of course, of course. Well, and that was another. Now I'm not familiar with. Justice Lords from other mediums, but that was another element that I really enjoyed taking stories that I was familiar with either from first two seasons of the Justice League or from, you know, we're talking this week during the fall premiere, the CW premieres are coming later in the, uh, in the year, but, uh, but we, we've seen several of these storylines uh, come back on Flash and on Arrow and on these different um, DC properties. So, so seeing a like a much better and a much cannier take on Hawk Girl and Hawkman being reincarnated um, in this was particularly fun after seeing the way it was botched on Legends of Tomorrow. <laughs> but I also do like the fact that that when this, the idea is introduced, Hawk Girl basically immediately dismisses it as this is stupid. Mm-hmm. But the you know they they ride the line nicely because we don't know. It sounds really really stupid, but. You, you don't know and I, I appreciate that mostly because it's been we've been talking for a while and i can't believe we haven't talked about this yet but speaking of the of female characters and of being silly i think it's time to talk about this little piggy <laughs> <laughs> i because i you talk, love we, we've that. been talking about i know we've been talking about like all the serious ideas the show had and the way it was able to promote serialization but it could also do an episode where Wonder Woman turns into a pig and Batman has to save her by singing a jazz song. <laughs> we just need to take a moment to appreciate that that is a thing that exists. I appreciate this is like I, I'm glad I was going to bring this up at some point because this little piggy is 
probably my favorite episode of the of Justice League Unlimited. I mean, it's like this and then Great Brain Robbery. And they're both very just standalone, really funny, very character-driven type of episodes. And it's just this little piggy feels like the ultimate like satisfaction of the DC animated Batman for me in a lot of ways because it's just like we've built Batman up for decade for over a decade at this point and he's gotten to the point where he's legitimately concerned for and let's be very honest in love with Diana um no matter how much he protests to her or to uh uh, uh, John, it's just like it's very clear that you're in love with this woman and now he's doing everything in his power to make sure that she's no longer a pig, including revealing the fact that he can sing and <laughs> it's just, it's so good and it's one of the, it's just such a summation of A, Kevin Conroy's work as Batman for over a decade, but then just how everyone reply responds to the fact that he's singing this jazz standard. So Cersei's crying. Zatanna, who knows Bruce from years ago, like of everyone in the episode, she's the one that knows Bruce the best. And she's just like, I had no idea. And it's so great. It's so great. I really, I, I can't say enough nice things about this little piggy. And it speaks a lot that, I mean, this is, I think the only justice league unlimited episode that was written by Paul Dini so that right there is enough to make really clear that the episode is just going to be very on point. I was just reading the uh, AV Club's review of that episode that my friend, our friend Oliver Saba wrote. And apparently, according to that, on the DVD commentary, there was a deleted scene in that episode where the Joker showed up and had a massive plan to destroy the city. But he immediately backed off because he saw Batman talking to a pig and decided that Batman had gone crazy. <laughs> that's fun that's fun and we also can't forget that this episode gives us wanna beast which i did not hear the b <laughs> so i just heard wanna beast when i was watching it i was like wait like his his name is wannabe uh, i mean i, Who, I love the fact he named that himself <laughs> that that's unfortunate the guys got self-esteem <laughs> issues <laughs> I, I love that every hero, all the heroes that are out looking for that Wonder Woman is a pig are basically just like the Justice the Justice League C-listers. Like it's like they just don't they, talk about Elastic Man like that. <laughs> I, I just like the idea that John just suddenly paged everyone on the on the on the Watchtower and said, "Hey, if you got ten minutes, uh, we need to go find a pig who might be Wonder Woman. Please don't ask any questions." Yeah, keep us on the DL, but you know that those C-listers are gonna, you know, that's, oh, that's, they were, that's getting around. They were totally talking about that in the commissary, and I just love that the Watchtower has a commissary. There is a commissary, yeah. <laughs> uh, before we run out of time, though, we do need to talk a little bit about the Great Brain Robbery, because it oh, is yeah. delightful. Well, well, now that I'm at least out of this, I can discover the Flash's secret identity. I have no idea who this is. <laughs> Which is great because there's always that sense of like, ah, ha, 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 we'll take off their mask. It's like, yeah, you know what they look like, but if they aren't, you know, Bruce Wayne, billionaire or whatever, or, then... Or, or Clark Kent, famous reporter. Yeah, you're not going to know who they are. They look, It looks like a dude. If I see this dude again, I will recognize him or her. And that's... But I won't because I only ever see him when he's wearing this costume. Yeah. <laughs> like if but you no, take that... a picture, you could do like a whole search thing. But I, I appreciated that. Yeah. 
but no, the Great Brain Robbery is it, it's terrific fun just to see the but just to see the return. I mean, both to hear Clancy Brown just have to stammer through after he, we spent so long just loving his Lex Luthor or love hating his Lex Luthor and being just so calm and poised and collected to suddenly hear him say flash dialogue with that little just a uh, uh, sort of casual stammer of his is it's wonderful. It's just <laughs> all of it is wonderful. You say have to, I say get to. Like, I, when's the last time Clancy Brown got to do that kind of dialogue? Think about everything he's ever been cast in. Can you remember him playing a wacky character? Well, I mean, his character in SpongeBob is not exactly, like, down to earth. He's still kind of, like, hard. He's still kind of obsessive and everything. But he's not, like, as, like... Evil as Clancy Brown typically is. I, cast you as. have to go to SpongeBob, dude. That's like that's. <laughs> he's been doing. Find. He's been doing SpongeBob for years. Like he's been on SpongeBob since it started. Yeah. Yes, and that's <laughs> wonderful. I have a big place in my heart for SpongeBob. Do not get me wrong. However, <laughs> I think we can agree uh, that when he's when you're doing your voice work, it gives you more leeway than you might get in anything. Can you imagine him being yeah. cast anything live action where they let him play wacky? I want to see oh. a live-action wacky Clancy Brown. Is what I'm saying. <laughs> I, I wish that they had. I wish that in the episode of The Flash where uh, his where Island got possessed by Gorilla Grodd, they'd been able to have more. He'd had more fun with that. Yeah, definitely. definitely. But, which also, I find it. I find it rather amusing that he thought that he voiced Lex Luthor and then, but then was possessed by Gorilla Grodd. So there's a lot of weird synergy that exists between the DC animated universe and the. Uh, CWDC universe that I find amusing. Yeah. Well, do we have any other characters or episodes that we want to make sure to give a shout out to? I mean, there's so there's so oh, many God, there's, characters. There's, there's, but... there's so much. Uh, one, epi- uh, one episode I actually do want to give a shout out to that I just sort of enjoyed as this thing that you could do with the breath of Justice League was uh, The Greatest Story Never Told, which was boost- the Booster Gold-centric episode that's basically his The Zeppo, where they just get to focus they just get to focus on this one hero his story and just what he does while the rest of the league is fighting this grand threat in the background which he occasionally pops in on in the very memorable moment where what where heroes are thrown at him with the voices of different heroes <laughs> and i just i just love but i love that cuz i had no idea who booster gold even was before i watched that episode and by the end of it i i completely knew who booster gold was i knew his backstory i knew his motivations and i knew where he fit into this world and so it's again like there's so much great stuff in the big arcs of cadmus the secret society brainiac dark seed and all of that but i love the fact the show was not afraid to just take these little asides and just to look at the to look at individual members of the justice league who even though we may never see them after this point except in a big battle with we got to know them in that moment. Thanks, Green Lantern. <laughs> um, Noel, <laughs> do you have any other episodes you wanted to make sure to mention or, or characters? Um, I'll mention Destroyer, which is like the series finale, um, which is the culmination of the um, the Secret Society slash Legion of Doom uh, team up. But it's notable for um, two things two things um one and this is throughout the entire series is that Joaquin Dos Santos who 
did really stellar work on Legend of Korra and Avatar The Last Airbender, directed a bunch of these episodes, which is why you see some really solid action sequences within Justice League Unlimited. And it doesn't disappoint here either. But the other thing I'll mention about Destroyer and is Superman has the World of Cardboard speech which is one of my favorite like Superman characterizations that I've seen where Superman's just like, I have to just be so careful all of the time. And in Greg Newborn's delivery of it, it comes through really clearly about that he gets the fact that this is a weight that Kal-El carries with him all the time. And while he's, for the most part, fairly lighthearted and wants to do well um he he's so consciously aware of his own power that the chance to just start ripping on dark side is liberating for him and he really relishes that and it's just such a great speech from Dwayne McDuffie um who wrote a number of the Justice League Unlimited episodes and is generally credited with arcing a lot of this stuff out no yeah Um, i'm looking at the credits he wrote basically the back half of season two all of the cadmus stuff yeah um and you you can just tell that that was a speech that he had written for superman on the off chance that he ever got to write a superman comic and just had it in a drawer somewhere and then went this is the moment and got to use it. And it's just, it's really, really great. Uh, what about you? What about you, Kate? Was there anything in your smattering that we didn't talk about? Well, more than a particular episode or character that we haven't mentioned, at least um, the, the last thing I had with, with, Justice League Unlimited is that it was striking to me how much this really, even with Unlimited, even with all these extra characters, it very much feels like a Superman show. This is Superman's show. And that's because we can't have all anybody with Batman associated and very few people are familiar with Wonder Woman's side characters or her villains. And so because of that, for the most part with Grodd thrown in there and a couple of people thrown in there, the the big villains of Justice League, uh, Justice League Unlimited, definitely it's, it's, it's Brainiac and it's Lex Luthor. And those are both Superman villains. And so it lets it, it's somewhat, it's kind of a shame that it, it does feel a bit repetitive. It's a bit like Dr. Who with the Daleks where it's like, Oh, with the new series, at least. Uh, I wonder who the bad guy's going to be. It's, it's going to be Lex Luthor. It's always Lex Luthor. Um, so that's a little bit, you know, underwhelming when it keeps coming back to the same well. But on the same front, I mean, there's a reason. And that's because it's a memorable villain with an excellent voice actor doing really tremendous work. Um, and so so I think they do a good job of without not... In- incorporating some of the strengths of Superman and Superman's rogues villains and rogue, you know, canon of ro- rogues villains, um, but without being limited by the, you know, things of Superman that keep coming up in his stories, where it's like, okay, we get it. He's like a god. We've seen that story. Let's do a different version. Or, yes, 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 he has to constantly be controlled, which that's a great speech. Don't get me wrong. And it's really well used. Um, but you can only give that speech so many times so they do a good job of of making this feel like superman a very much a superman show without letting the fact that superman is way overpowered hamper it well do you guys have any final thoughts about justice league unlimited uh i do actually so i came to justice league pretty only this year as a matter of fact so and my knowledge of a lot of the comic of just comic lore and mythos is very limited. Like I couldn't, like you start talking your new 52 or your crisis on infinite earths. I won't be able to follow any of it, 
But I just got, I remember I just gotten back from seeing Batman versus Superman in the theater, which was just absolutely God awful. And I just like, I need a palate cleanser. I need something that will basically get this out of my head. And so that was when I started watching Justice League. And I was just absolutely hooked since then. And I mean, I'm still not anywhere near like any sort of major comic knowledge, but and that's one of the things I like about it. you can you don't really need to know you I mean there's a ton, ton of things that are paid um, homage to there's a ton of things brought in but you really don't need to have an encyclopedic knowledge of the DC universe to sit down and watch this show all you need to do is basically know these are the characters these are their powers they fight evil and and guess it's more complicated than that but on not the whole, a lot but, more <laughs> no, not really. But I mean, I mean, there's depth. I mean, just in terms of like the depth of the characters and the shading and some of the villains that they fight. But yeah, it's an it's an incredibly watchable show, and it's and it's just it's just fun in a way that I think a lot of contemporary superhero stuff can miss the mark on. But it just it's just it's just makes me so happy to watch it every time. And I'll connect both of your last points um, in that. Kate hasn't seen, and I'm assuming, Les, have you watched Superman the Animated Series at all? I have not, but since okay. I... Yeah, I watched a bunch of Batman the Animated Series growing up, and I'm re-watching a bunch of it, but actually Justice League has made me want to dive into the Superman Animated Series. Right, and this was, like, my point to connect everything. Like, Kate, Kate says that this is a Superman, like, centric series, and you're talking about not having any knowledge of, like, the comic books and everything. One of the real things I really like about Justice League Unlimited and Justice League is that you don't have to have seen, haven't had to have seen any of Batman or Superman prior to watching this. So even, like, that toss-away flashback of these Lex Luthor re rebuilds Brainiac, which is an actual episode in the Superman animated series. And it's actually a very good episode, but it's just like Dwayne McDuffie went, well, that was a thing that happened. I'm going to tie it all together to make this idea that I've had make sense. And you don't have to have seen that episode of Superman for that to not make, for that to work within the context of this show which I think is really significant because, I mean, they were just, like, years apart from one another. And so a little kid watching this on Cartoon Network, which is where Justice League and Justice League Unlimited aired, probably may not have seen Superman back when it aired on WB Kids. But it's still really good, really compelling, really interesting superhero stuff. And I think that that's really the show's biggest strength is that you needn't know anything about the comic books and you needn't know anything about the series that it's still within the same universe of. You can just watch this and have a really good time. And I think that that's one of the reasons why like Justice League Unlimited is just in particular is really, really great. Yeah. And have fun with the, the fight scenes, which we haven't mentioned, but they're a lot right. of fun. They're on the whole very strong. Yeah. Yeah. Oh no, I love. The, uh, yeah. No. You're, uh, all credit again to Joaquin dos Santos and the, the fact that they were just able to pull in as many of the. I mean, I love the fight scenes in Batman the Animated Series, but the sheer scope of the powers that they got to introduce in Justice League Unlimited, where every one in five people can level a building with a punch if they so choose, they were able to. It's just so dynamic and so wonderful, and so. So much so that you're just like, oh, what is the insurance companies like in this world? Because so much. Is well, I suppose that they're the Alan Tudyk show coming up will explain that to us. 
Yep, yep. Look for Powerless. I think that's mid-season, right, on NBC? Uh, That is indeed indeed mid-season. But until then, listeners, dive back in with Justice League Unlimited is, I think, what we're saying. If, you ha- if you've gotten this far and you haven't seen it, I think you'll certainly enjoy it. And it's if you've all gotten this far and you haven't Netflix. seen it, I'm kind of surprised. <laughs> yeah, fair enough. Fair enough. Um, well, thank you so much, Les, for coming out to help us talk about Justice League Unlimited and getting me to finally watch it. Because I watched Justice League with, with Noel uh, last year and really enjoyed it, but I hadn't said it at the time. So I'm glad that I really do- dove in with this one. Uh, where can listeners find you and your work online? Uh, well, you can, find my, you can find my work over... Uh, at the AV Club, avclub.com. Not current, kind of in between shows I'm reviewing, but I have my What's On, I do What's On Tonight on Sunday nights, and I'm sure I'll be doing something in the near future. But you can also always just follow me on Twitter. I'm at lessismore909, L-E-S-I-S-M-O-R-E, nine, letter O, nine. And thank you once more or less for coming on. It's always a pleasure. Oh, please, thanks for having me. And thank you everyone for listening. We'll be back next week with another episode of The Televerse. Thank you.